Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot him in the head. All right. Welcome back to Shoot Me Straight with Dave Fields and myself, Eddie Gallagher. Uh, really excited for our guest today, uh, Dan Cirillo. Am I pronouncing that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, Dan was a short notice guest. He actually flew in here to uh, look at the range uh, Stronghold Soft Solutions to see if it's uh, applicable to throw a Spartan 7 training event there. Um, and he agreed to be on this podcast, which um, I'm grateful for. Thank you for coming on, man. Um, Dan, I, we've, we've, this is the first time that we have met face-to-face, um, but I've heard your name a million times through my career. Uh, your nickname, Taco, uh, which is what I'll probably call you on this podcast because that's what I'm used to hearing. Um, but, you know, I heard... I heard your name a million times through my career, especially uh, near the end when I was going through my horror ordeal and because you went through a very similar ordeal uh, way before I did. Um, we have a lot of similarities um, of our, through our career and even more similarities after our transition and just what we had to go through to get back on our feet. Um, you know, I've, I've got to hang out with you all day today and uh, listen to you tell talk about what you're doing now and you know the adversity that you have overcome and it's it's amazing to uh sit here and listen and just get the little gems that you you keep dropping um it's our day together it's already helped me out um big time um so i'm super stoked to have you on man thank you brother for being here oh thank you i'm like i'm like giddy right now (laughs) i've uh you know i i feel like you know i finally everything you went through eddie i feel like it was i finally had somebody who could understand it yep because you can't understand it. Like, people are like, oh, well, yeah, that sucked. I'm like, did it? Like, <laughs> really? Is that, that, is that easy? Okay, you know, so I've been waiting for this for a long time. And, you know, I, uh, like a few other guys who were staunch supporters, uh, um, I remember trying to, people trying to give me heat. And I'm like, bring it. Yep. Bring it. He is innocent until proven guilty. And I know what's going on. I know the system. You're never going to convince me. You're never going to convince me that he should be treated any differently than an American citizen, you know? And, and so I, I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Well, I, brother, I appreciate that, like, that you, you stood up, you know, especially when I was going through my thing and, and uh, were a backbone for me, you know, uh, you along with uh, a couple others that, you know, we know the Acognacs, you know, that whole group, um, which was, was a big ordeal for us that helped us get through, just that you guys came to our aid uh, in the Navy SEALs fund with Drago and Rachel and you're right, you know, when you talk to people about going through a situation like that, because not many people have that experience. There's, I think there's, you know, a select few that are actually faced with that type <clears> of adversity. Um, it's it's hard to explain the amount of stress, the amount of uh, really trauma um, that is inflicted on you and your family and your loved ones um, as you're going through that. And I'm, I'm glad to have you here, man, because you do understand um, and you do understand what it takes to overcome that after you get out. Um, so real quick, well, let's, uh, let's just go over, um, you and, um, do you want to start from your childhood or do you want to start from the, the, your career? Um, you let me know. Yeah. Um, you know, let's back to the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was born in, uh, Washington, Washington state, central Washington. Uh, my grandfather, uh, had some farms and that was my family's business for a long time. Right. Um, mom, you know, uh, Met a guy, Navy guy. We moved to San Diego, and for the most part, from that point on, I was raised between San Diego and Pensacola. We literally flip flop back and forth. I don't know, 
10, 15 times. It was crazy. Um, and uh, for the most part of the San Diego, so mostly east side San Diego is where I grew up. Um, back in those days, like, it's funny. I look across Coronado Bay Bridge now. It's like condos and shit and stuff. And uh, that wasn't the way it was when I grew up. It was the hood, you know, mm-hmm. and that's uh, that was just home. And you know, I loved I loved San Diego, and fortunate enough to uh, come back there and do my my career there. You know, I played football here in Pensacola um, in Escambia High School. You know, wonderful program, wonderful people. Um, I love the South. You know, the South is just the South, right? And then I uh, went to South Carolina, uh, played some more football up there for a little bit, and then joined the Navy from there, completely by chance. I was. Uh, Go through high school, Top Gun. I wanted to be a naval aviator, right? I wanted to be a oh, pilot, yeah. and uh, so into it, and uh, did everything I was supposed to do—math, sciences, whatever. Try to be the best student I could, <clears throat> but I didn't have anybody to explain that system to me. And so when I applied, I got denied, but I got offered to go to uh, prep school. Well, I basically thought that was a denial, mm-hmm. right? Like I was like, "Oh, they don't want me." So I became very anti-military, like very like. Phew, screw you guys. And obviously started partying and doing all those other things. And my girlfriend, uh, by now I'm a complete like hoodlum hood rat, you know? Uh, and, uh, she's actually a doctor now, you know, all these years later, she always said she's gonna be a doctor in high school, but she takes me to see this show Navy seals. And it's literally like went to the movie on Friday, watched Navy seals, played a football game on Saturday, got crushed like 72 to zero. And, that night, massive party, and uh, the gangbangers come to the party. We, 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 we throw some, some chingasos in the front yard. You know, that was kind of my gig back then. I like fighting, and I had a good group of dudes, and it was, it was awesome brawl, right? And uh, they came by my house and shot my house up. I wasn't home. Oh, shit. All right? And on Monday morning, I was the recruiter, and I'm like, hey, man, I, I, I want to I get out of here, dude. I want to be a SEAL, et cetera, and uh, had a lot of drama there because I had done the studying, so my pre-ASVAB, I missed one question. And so a recruiter at that time, if you put one nuke in the Navy, that was eight recruits. And so he's like, you're not going to be a SEAL. You're going to be a nuke. Oh. I had no concept or clue what was happening. I just wanted to be a SEAL. And so luckily my buddy, uh, J.C. Cope, his, the, he actually lives here in Georgia now. And um, his dad was Commander Don Cope, pretty famous in the, in the military at that time. He actually held the record for the deepest dive in the Navy at that time. I think he still does. Mm-hmm. I went to him. I'm like, hey, Big Don, they say I can't be a SEAL. I got to be this nuke thing. He's like, hang on. And he marches in there. He's like six foot five, six foot six. And you get this kid anything he wants, you know. <laughs> and uh, that's what that's what started. I was lucky enough to one of my best friends. So I've, I've always had the same friends for the most part um, growing up. J.C. Cope, <clears throat> Robert Dixon, and Frankie Choeski. And uh, Frankie was always kind of competition to me. Like, we were, re- we were friends. We were comp- we-, we wrestled against each other. We are fighting for the same weight class, right? He was a better surfer than me, so I was trying to surf with him. And uh, I told him, like, hey, man, I'm going to go do the SEAL team shit. And he's like, me too. I'm like, no way. He's like, I don't want to tell anybody in case it'll make it, you know? So we started training together. And we literally were spraying each other down the hose in the best backyard. You know, like, oh, dumb, yeah. The dumbest nonsense. And we became, we became training partners. He actually went to boot camp before me, came back from boot camp. He'd been part of the dive fair program, showed me what I needed to do differently. And, uh, man, I, I hook, line, and sinker. All right, hook, line, and sinker, I was, I was going to be a team guy. And got lucky, got my orders, went to boot camp, A school, back to mid A school, and um, went to Bethesda, Maryland for four months, which was awesome because – all the guys from my buds class were all there holding, just waiting on our buds class. Yep. 
and uh, got really tight. Steve Prasia, Pete Musselman, who's now like the Eurocom Master Chief. Um, you know, so many dudes, so many names. And then we all went to Buds together. Every one of us made it, right? Because we really trained really hard in Bethesda. We all went to Buds together. We all made it. I was an original 194. And, uh, you know, pretty much the same boat crew. And then I got to do platoons with those guys. Like, one of the guys who I idolize a lot, Johnny Rodriguez, he was my boat crew leader in Buds. And then we went to the teams together and our whole careers. And I had a great career, you know. I I, I went to SEAL Team 1, very immature. I did, I, I did squander a lot of my SEAL career because I just didn't understand how big it was. Yeah. I was too young, right? And everything was so easy. I was one of those dudes who I, I was a good wrestler. I, I was a good athlete. When it came to training, I loved training, you know. And uh, buds, I had a few moments of buds that were difficult, but for the most part, it was like just work out. Yeah. Right? When I got to the team is when my struggles actually started. I expected to show up to the team and there'd be like everybody there cheering. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. welcome to the team. Welcome. You know, no. Complete this opposite. was SEAL Team 1 back in the day. Stalingrad 1. And, oh, my God. It was like, yeah. shut up, new guy. Go get a mop. And I'm like, hold on. Like, I'm, 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 like we weren't SEALs back then. We didn't yeah. have tridents, right? And uh, that was my introduction to the team. I remember my very first run, <clears throat> I was, you know, my body was a lot different then. I was a very fast runner. And uh, our very first run, Steve Percy and I, are, we're running. We're the two fastest guys in our buds class. And we come running across. And right, right there when we hit SEAL Team 5, this guy, like, books by us. Like, oh, whatever, you know. We finish, and he's standing at the quarter deck. And as we come up, he's just screaming at us, you stupid new guys, you pieces of crap, just ripping us apart. And we're smart enough not to say anything, but we're both like, who is this dude? Right? So we go back to our space, and we're in SQT at this time before there was, there was STT, STT before correct, SQT. Yeah. And uh, go to George Young, George Young's our platoon chief, and I'm like, man, who is that dude? He goes, that's a SEAL LPO. And I'm like, oh, yeah? Because at this <laughs> time, it just doesn't mean, you don't, you don't understand what a SEAL LPO is. Yeah. Right? I knew what a SEAL chief was. And, uh, my LPO for my entire basic career was Johnny Rodriguez, and Johnny didn't yell and scream. You know, Johnny was Johnny. And here's this guy. I mean, he's, he's mother-effing us up and down the street. I mean, literally through the whole compound seal team went back to his face. He's screaming at us, telling us what pieces of crap we are. And that was my first real introduction to the SEAL teams and what level it took. And years later, when I actually had this understanding, became an LPO and all these things, it is, one, to be an LPO, you're hand-selected. Two, leadership is everything. You, you have no excuse but to lead. And you either lead by example or you don't lead. And I was lucky enough in my first platoon to have this amazing cast of leaders who are now, like Brian Raymond was one of the most decorated case officers. He runs a big, massive security number company now. Leif Mallo had a brilliant SEAL career. Georgie Young became a Master Chief. Chris Good, Jocko Willing, oh, yeah. Chris Zavallis, Mike Everett, Jack Bullock. Like these guys who were like legends in the teams were my first platoon. And Bill Munn, who was my LPO, who was just a complete jerk. But he was a good <laughs> jerk, right? Yeah. Because he was so hard on us. And he was so demanding. But the one thing you started noticing about, about Bill, Bill was always first and last. First to come, last to leave. We're out there spraying down boats and motors. It's freezing cold, and Bill's in his wetsuit. You know he's cold, but he didn't say anything. Bill's, Bill's number one guy up the ladder. And, and that was the, I think that was the start of me almost ruining me a little. Because, one, you're around men, right? 
Like they're not dude, they're men. And you're sitting there going, every seal is like this. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. We were lucky enough to deploy an ARG Alpha. We did a real world mission. Um, you know, not anything exciting, by the way. This was all pre 9 11. It's all pre 9 11. This was 95. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we took down a boat called the Shahad off the coast of Iran. It's on the History Channel. You can watch it. And it was gay. It was lame. <laughs> it was no fun. We literally, it was like the most compliant boarding ever. It was the first time SEALs had done anything, right? It had to be exciting back then. Oh, though. yeah. It was it was like, big yeah, time. we're doing some like, real we're shit. We're going to hook yeah. and climb. We're putting ammo. We're loading our mags. You know, it was a big deal. And uh, I would say that platoon really ruined me in the SEAL teams. Like, very much ruined me. And because the next platoon, platoons were not as good. The leadership was not even as close to par as that. And it was almost a letdown of like, how is this my platoon chief? Like this dude can't even climb a ladder. Like this dude can't even do a pull-up, right? And so my next platoon, complete opposite, I really got in a lot of trouble. Um, yeah, I, I just, I mean, I, I, I'm surprised I didn't get kicked out, right? Because I was just like, just I, I, I had no, no respect for anybody but my AOIC, who was a six platoon enlisted guy who became an officer. Yeah. Outside of that, I'm like the rest of you, you, you guys. Well, that's because the the bar was set. The bar Standard was set, was set right? with your first platoon. Yeah, my platoon commander was awesome, but he hurt himself, so he's never around, right? But as far as the enlisted leaders went, I, I just was like, I'd rather. I, I almost, I, I literally was going to murder one of them. He was standing in the flight deck one night. I'm like, if I just push him, nobody will ever find his body. <laughs> like that's where my mindset was, right? So an econ was with me, and econ was probably that one dude who kept me from like going crazy. I'm like, dude, I'm gonna kill this dude. <laughs> and I just didn't like him, right? And I won't say his name because it doesn't matter. I'm I'm past it now, and I understand what his purpose was. And he was, uh, he gave really good advice. He gave it in a really bad way. And so I always tell people I learned more from the bad leaders in the teams yep. than I did the good. My next platoon was kind of a Hollywood platoon, went to Guam. Uh, so I, it's hard for me because I, back in those days, guys were like, yeah, I went to Guam, went to Guam. And here I did two R-Alphas back-to-back, and I'm like, it's not even a deployment. It's just a big stripper fest party. Yeah, it's a party. Right? It's just a big party. And, uh, again, had really poor enlisted leadership, re- the, as poor as you could get. And um, I at that point, I was kind of that – limbo of like is this it like is this the teams i like i didn't come here to like party and i came here to like go to war and fight battles and and uh so i was like you know kind of this this place of like do i go to damn neck do i get a degree what do i do Mm -hmm. and i had had a kid um my oldest son dominic i shouldn't say had a kid I i had my son dominic uh with my ex uh jamie and i'm one of the lucky few team guys that my ex is awesome Right, like you can't say a bad thing about her. She is this amazing, successful businesswoman, like, and was just a great mother. But she's like, if you go to Virginia, he ain't coming to see you. You need to come here to visit him. And I'm not going either. It's like I'm from San Diego. My business is in San Diego. My family assets are here, etc. And it was this thing of at that time, Damneck wasn't doing anything either, right? And I really wanted to go, but I'm like, I didn't have a father. Right. My, my parenting wasn't that great. And I was so in love with my son. I'm like, man, I can see where this is going. Yeah. If I'm not there. So I just made a decision, man. I'm like, uh, I'm gonna go to buds. Right. I had met this girl, uh, and I just asked her, I'm like, why don't you come live with me for a month? You know, by then Dominic, Jamie and I weren't together anymore. 
And so uh, Leilani, she's my wife now, and I just said, why don't you come live with me for a month? Um, I've never really been committed to a relationship. You know, like Jamie and I tried. I was 21. She was, yeah, I was 22. She's 32. You know, a lot of drama from my my end, obviously. And so you, sorry, I didn't cut you off, but you were at Bud's at this time, right, as an when instructor? I, yeah. And so Leilani and I started living together. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, I fell deeply in love. Like I just never, I don't even know if I knew what love was, honestly. Like, like Jamie and I, I love Jamie. I still love her today. But Leilani, I'm in love with. It's weird, right? And um, we ended up getting married, having two kids. And I was just dead set. I'm like, I, I'm, I love being a father. Like, man, I love being a husband. We bought our first house together. We, bought our, we had a little cottage. Then we bought a house. And then we bought another house. And I'm going to school full time. And I'm like... Man, I, I, I'm really good at math. I'm going to go get into finance. I'm going to make this family some money. All my friends were getting out of the teams to go into finance. You know, Craig Miklich was a you know, senior VP at Goldman. A bunch of dudes who are now big-time finance guys in America, you know, were, were my bros. And we were all in that program together. So exciting. And I was, I was really into school. I, I really sucked at school the first time. So here I am now. I'm, I'm remodeling a house. I'm a father. I'm a husband. And I'm going to school at nights. And... My, my bro Frankie's there with me, so we're, we're laughing and giggling. And it's so weird to go to school when you're a little more mature. It's so easy. Like, oh, you just need me to do some work for an hour? Like, I don't know why it was so hard before, but it was, right? And uh, that was it. Like, life was really, really good. Like, life was quiet and good. And then we're going to do an ultrasound for my, my third uh, son, uh, my, my second son, excuse me, my, my third child, Kellen. And um, we're laying in bed. I took the day off work. And my neighbor called. She's like, you need to turn the TV on. Hmm. And I turned the TV on, and right as the second plane is hitting, and I'm just like, what, 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 what's going on? Like, you know, we were, I think we were all like, what's going on? And then the Pentagon and et cetera. Yeah. And I just, I, I started, I got up, and I started packing my stuff. I was like, hey, the phone's going to ring a little bit, and I, I don't know when I'm going to come back, right? And so probably about two hours went by phone rings uh my boss randy beaujolais and he's like hey you got you need to come in and i'm like hey i have the ultrasound today he's like okay go do that and then just come to work afterward so go to ultrasound and find out i'm having a son right and uh i go home and i i think you know the war is i think this war is starting so i'm like hey we're all going right buds is going to end we're all going to get in platoons. We're all going to go to missions. Because at that point, North Korea, um, we had mission packages on North Korea. I think the first day of operations would be 27 missions conducted. And it was going to take literally the entire West Coast SEAL teams and some of the East Coast to get these things done. We're expecting 50, 50% casualties, 70% casualties, right? So it's a big deal. So my brain, I think it's North Korea that did this tax. That's all we ever trained for. North Korea, North Korea, North Korea. We had heard of Al-Qaeda. But, it, like, it was just kind of these passing statements, like, I got these cavemen, you know, like, whatever. Yeah. And then as more information came out, kind of learned it. And um, everything that I thought would happen didn't happen. I expected, like, this massive ramp of platoons to go fight <laughs> war. And they are like, we're going to take one platoon. And I'm like, okay, how do I get in there? They're like, you can't. <laughs> and, you, you know, everything kind of just waiting game and, you know, um, made a lot of phone calls to get into to everywhere I could. And they're like, Dan, there's just nothing going on. One till team three is going to send one platoon. We're going to send a mobility unit with them. And then we'll kind of make some calls after that. And so I was sitting there and I'm kind of in that place of, okay, I've already, I've already uh, signed all the paperwork to get, start my master's program. And what do I do? And they're like, Hey, we're going to, they're going to form a new seal team, seal team seven. And now Iraq is starting to start talked about. 
And I'm like, okay, Afghanistan's one thing, Iraq's another. I go, either way, bottom line is I need to get to a SEAL team. And I just told my wife, I'm like, hey, I know we're planning on getting out, that you were going to go, I was going to go to business school, et cetera, et cetera. I want to stay in. She's like, whatever you want to do. And so SEAL Team 7, I made the phone calls, and they were like, yeah, we love you. Went over to SEAL Team 7 and uh, got put into platoon. Um, you know, a, a very real workup, right? Like, it was uh, it was different because before, in the era of the teams that I came in through, we had notional helicopters, right? We yeah. had notional jumping into the target. Everything was notional because you didn't have any assets, I showed up to Team 7, and they were like, what do you guys need? And literally, you t- we always talked about the Golden Connex box. box yeah. The shit actually opened, and all this gear. I mean, because we used to sew our own gear in the airloft. We have to go to REI and buy a pouch, and, and all of a sudden, this, the gear, you're like, oh, my God. Like, and it all matched. That was a really big deal, right? You had yeah. matching stuff. I, ha- I have to ask a question on that one. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah, man. There's a lot of stuff that you said. I'm like, okay, I don't understand that. But the Golden... Okay, so in the teams, before the war, the SEAL teams were poor. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, there was no money. Even though we had probably quadrupled the money the Marine Corps had, so imagine that. So when it came to gear, if you didn't weren't there the day that gear arrived, there were no more gear left. So if you wanted a jacket, you went to REI or Adventure 16, and you bought a jacket. Mm-hmm. So as a SEAL, E5 SEAL in the SEAL teams, in my, I think I was in year six, I was on food stamps. Right, like we were poor. That's that was just the way of life was. My wife had a full time job, I had a full time job. We're on food stamps just to survive. Wow. And so when it came to gear, everything you thought you would get, you basically it was just a thought. So one day we always talked about the golden conic. Damn neck has the golden conics box. Damn neck, damn neck. And then when the, when I went to SEAL Team Seven, the golden conics box opened. And there was this is a gear, like, here's 10 pair of boots. Here's green gear, brown gear, gray gear. So you had three different colors of gear. Here is, you know, brown body armor, green body armor, shipboarding body armor, you know, dry suits. I mean, it was like, holy. And we had a lot of gear up to that. Now it's like even more. And, but the thing was, it all matched. So this is a big deal about matching. I'll see. We used to have to go to DRMO and be like, okay, well, DRMO is the trash bin. Whatever you could find to make work. So you might have guys with a brown patch here, black patch, green pouch, you know, whatever. Well, all of a sudden you get this big brown bag and all like 100, 100 pouches in there. You set your gear up any way you wanted to. And that was a big, huge deal. That's awesome. Like a big deal, right? And uh, so I got to go to SEAL Team 7 and um, I had been a breaching instructor. So I got to basically be the lead breacher at SEAL Team 7 and so many good guys there. Like just so many rock star dudes and as everything is ramping up, we were doing our whole workup to go to Afghanistan. And then basically the, about three-quarters of the way through our workup, they said, okay, East Coast has Afghanistan, West Coast has Iraq. And, okay, so we changed everything, and then it basically came out like, okay, we're going to kick off the war with a super troop. All right, what's a super troop? They're like, we're going to handpick guys to go in the super troop. And so I was like, hey, man, I'm getting in that shit. And, you know, Brian Berger was like, Taco's coming with me. All right, so they pulled me out of my platoon. It basically pulled like one or two guys at each platoon to form a super troop with Falco ne- Fox, uh, Foxtrot and Echo, and we went to Baghdad and kicked off the war. So Team 3 did the invasion. Team 5 really set the standard of direct action, uh, SEAL, team, SEAL Team direct action missions in Iraq, 
and just wrote a playbook. It was awesome. You know, so like Matt Bissonette, um, uh, Matt Hushin, um, you know, Matt Lennig, they're fucking like probably hundred mats, right? Yeah. I think even Matt Hyden was there. You know? <laughs> Tage Gill, like dudes who are just in the, te- in, in, outside the teams now for us in our circle are just like, they're, they're it, right? They're it. And um, those guys started kicking doors. They started doing work with government agencies and launching on targets like tomorrow, like right now. Mm-hmm. So whereas everybody else, we were always in these 96 hour planning periods. We it just just went out the window. Like, here's the target we're going. Same template, boom. Same template, same. Template. And those guys kicked a ton of doors. They captured Tariq Aziz, so who's the number two in Iraq. And we rolled in and took that over. And from the moment we hit the ground, we were rolling. Mm. So sounds got, like you, Eddie. Like mm? you, that sounds like you totally. Like, what? Just executing, executing. Like oh well, that's pretty much the job yeah. of a enlisted team guy is give me what we got to do and we're gonna go execute. Yeah, and so. We, ca- we were in Baghdad. I was in Baghdad for three months, four months, and then I got hit. Uh, I got in a hand-to-hand fight with an Al-Qaeda guy in a doorway. I had set the charge on the door, and then when he came, he opened the door. What We hit a charge. So I'll tell you the story because it's, you know, I guess you need fruit to it. Jay, Jay Schmidt and I would trade off who's the A and the B breacher. So each night, Jay would be the A, I'd be the B, then we'd flip-flop because we're doing so many. It's a lot of tension to be a breacher because you're going up to the door, you got a point man, but you don't have a gun. Your gun's slung and you just got a charge in your hand. And, you know, remember, there was no training for this prior to going to the war. So everything we're doing, we're writing. Like, we got to the, when we showed up to the war, we had these seven-foot strip charges and, and Matt Hushin was like, no, dude, cut that thing in half. And then during our deployment, we got rid of, of, of uh, what's called um, data sheet entirely because you got to find it was breaking. We went to low has flex in air. So everything was ch- literally every day we're changing tactics of how we're going to ta- hit these targets, right? And the targets are just piling up, right? They're like, hey, we got seven targets for you. We have six targets for you. So it's just piling up, right? <clears throat> and so every night, Jay and I are flip-flopping. We had a designated point team. We had a designated second floor team. Everything was very regimented. So long story short, um, Jay goes over the first wall. We're going to have to this Al-Qaeda financier. Jay goes over, and they have these 55-gallon drums, boom, boom, boom. So as they get to the door, they get compromised, and the, you hear the fighting start, right? Yelling, screaming, loud bang, you know, everything. It's, it's, it's a fight is on. So me and Brian Berger were going to the back door to do version charge. So as we got to the back door, we could hear them, PCSS, PCSS. So it means they got prisoners, they need assistance. So I just threw a, a big concussion grenade to create a diversion, and then Brian and I rolled in. We rolled in, and it was actually a video. I don't know what ever happened to the video. And it's literally a, it's literally a bar fight, right? you got muzzle strike. It's hand-to-hand fighting in the entire room. That's all you see is each guy is in a each All six guys of that six-man entry team are in a hand-to-hand fight. So as I enter in a number seven position, it's like just start muzzle strike. Because you can't shoot anybody. Because they're literally like, how do I shoot this guy? So it's your muzzle striking guys stomping on their faces, and you're just pushing. Next thing I, I remember is just Chris Goode is like six foot five, right? He comes in and he kind of makes a hole through there, and the whole team is following him. So we're still doing our thing. And then you hear the crashes going off and the rest of the targets being secured. Chaos, right? And we literally just got lucky because in that, in that room, in that building, I think there was like six AKs, a couple RPGs, bags of money. This is a real no shit bad guy house. And I remember just like, oh. well, this is probably target 25, 26, somewhere around there. And at this point, we had never hit the right target on the first try. Okay, so every target so far, we've basically gone to the target like, "Oops, next door," 
And, you know, a target before that, I actually had gotten a big, huge hand-to-hand fight with a guy. Very scary. We were in a room by ourselves together going at each other. And that's where my trial comes from is that that fight, right? Mm-hmm. So this is like a few nights later. And so when Jay got compromised, I was actually kind of happy because I'm like, better him than me. <laughs> so as I'm sitting in there and we're target secure, and the radio kicks off. And they're like, hey, that's the bodyguard's house. Our dude's next door. So we're in a one-story house with a little shit shack on the top. Next door is a three-story mansion, and I lose my shit, right? Because this is probably the sixth time I had been in six hand-to-hand altercations at this point. And I'm pretty fed up, right? And I just kind of like, what? You know, I'm mad. Like, how can they not, how they, you know, mess this up, et cetera, et cetera. And Lieutenant Ledford's like, calm down. Get your team. Go next door. And I'm like, you know, I needed that right in that moment. Roger that. Like, hey, breach team on me. Go next door. And we roll out. And my whole thing is my focus is always on just my point man. So Mark Carter, God rest his soul, um, was my point man. I didn't realize that my team wasn't behind me. It was just basically guys who had filled in. So your breach team is a set team, right? So we go over the wall, and it's just garbage everywhere. So we're kind of falling, getting to the door. Go to the door, put the charge on the door, and the charge falls off the door. And everybody literally is looking at me like, dude, it's your heart. It's like, da 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 right? And I go back to the door and I put the charge back up there and it falls off again. Mm. And I can just see Mark Carter looking at me. He's like, and meanwhile, this big, huge windows right here. I'm trying to stand in that window because I just know we're going to get shot through this window any second. Right. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, I can't even describe like, I, I don't know how to describe the, the, it, it isn't, it isn't fear. It's just like, I got to go. I need, I need to get this done. I got to solve this problem. And so I go up to put the charge on the door the third time. And now I'm really into it. I pull the tape off my legs and I look there and I'm like, is that an acetylene tank? Like, that's a freaking acetylene tank. It's a big, huge welding tank sitting next to the door. And I'm like, oh. So I grab the charge and I just chuck it in the yard because it was a main charge. And I'm like, dude, if that would have went off, it would have just dusted everybody. Mm-hmm. So I grab a secondary charge off my leg, a little tiny leg charge. At least I'll just weaken this door and then we'll be able to do our thing, right? Mm-hmm. So my whole goal now is just weaken the door so I can punt it in and, and get to work. Get the charge in the door, get back to the set point, and I go through my procedure, call turning steel. It's funny because it's now famous in Transformers, yeah. turning steel. Matt Hushin, I, I'd love to take credit for it. I got to say it the most, Matt Hushin started it, so love you, Hush Dog. Um, so turning, so, just a turning steel so, is the call you make. Yeah, so we have a firing device. Else know. Yeah. yeah, so we have a firing device that has a main safety, and then it has a roll safety. And so you pull the main safety, I'm turning steel, Means I'm turning that because it used to be, we used to go three, two, one, execute all this stupid officers and sons, right? So, <laughs> enlisted guys, like, it's happening so fast. I'm just turning steel. I'm going. So, turning steel, and, and I, I should have just blown the charge, right? I look up and there's a dude from me to that sign staring at me. Yard's really confined. And, but as soon as I call turning steel, I always always grab Mark's head and put it down because I know that window's going to come out on us probably. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, open and I just charge him and I'm trying to hold the firing device against my chest so we're kind of going at each other whatever and the next thing you know just flash of light that's that's it that's all I remember mm-hmm. flash of light right and so I kind of come to and I'm you, you, the ringing the saving private Ryan moment I'm, I'm completely blind and I just remember somebody picking me up by my night vision and my head hitting the ground well, it was Justin Leg, and he was wearing a camera, and he's like, he's dead, right? Because mm-hmm. the other guy got cut in half. 
So the charge mm-hmm. just cut him in half, right? Mm-hmm. Just blood everywhere, and it's like a little doorway. Well, I'm covered in it, too, so they're like, well, shit, he's dead, too. I can feel him stepping over me, and I'm like, I- I'm not dead, you know? I'm, and I remember just sitting there like, I- I- everything in my body just want to go to sleep. Well, I'm just so tired. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, man, I'm just so tired, you know? I'm like, keep your eyes open. And it was the first time ever where I thought God talked to me. But later on, years later, when I went to, to Mexico and did the, the Mexico therapy, I learned it wasn't God, it was my mom. Mm-hmm. And so I heard this voice and it said, Daniel, God damn it, get on your feet and get back in the fight. And I thought it was God, right? My mom always called me Daniel. Mm-hmm. And I heard it twice and I'm like, okay, uh, stop feeling sorry for yourself. I just remember find, trying to find my radio and I'm like, man down, man down. <clears throat> and they're like, who's down? I go, it's me. I'm in the doorway. I go, I'm, I'm, I'm hurt really bad. I can't see, so just like, talk to me, and I'll, I'll come back to you guys. So, like, just stay where you're at. We're coming to you. Well, meanwhile, they're still clearing the building. Now there's action starting to pick up out on the street, right? And eventually they get to me, and they, they kind of haul me off. And I remember when they got to me, they're just like, oh, shit. And I remember that, and I'm like, and I thought my arm was gone. Hmm. So my arm had gotten blown out of socket and was behind me. So I'm like, oh, my God, my arm's gone. So that was my biggest concern. Like, oh, shit, I lost my arm. I can't care about anything else, right? And I'm like, oh, my God, my arm. And then finally I'm like, Oh, there it is. <laughs> so little by little, a little bit of cognizant awareness comes through, right? Somewhere in there, apparently, I zip-tied the guy. I don't remember that, right? I just remember Jay Schmidt was like, dude, you zip-tied him. I'm like, I don't remember that. I actually thought I kicked the charges where it went off. But they were. I, I, I'm pretty sure now, later, all these years later, it was the firing device hit me in the chest when we were fighting. So they get me out to the vehicle, and um, I'm just blind. Like, I can't see anything, and I'm, I'm just ringing. <laughs> And, um, you know, had to call my wife. Like, hey, honey, you know, well, I just called her a few nights before that. Like, I was hurt and calling you again. Like, I'm, I'm really hurt this time. And, you know, a very emotional call. You know, hard, hard to tell your wife, hey, I'm blind. Um, I can't breathe, you know, and I, I don't know what happened. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in bad shape. And I'm, they're going to fly me home. So I came home. And uh, you were I, still blind at this point. I, I ended up getting my sight back a little bit over time. You know, each each that night I was completely blind, and then the next day I woke up I could see like fuzziness, and then it just got a little bit better each time. Luckily, I had my gaiters on, so I, w- I always wore gaiters. Right, and it was the one thing the teams g- got us really early was gaiter sunglasses. Um, and the gaiters had exploded; but they didn't implode, mm. so the whole lens shattered, but it didn't implode into my eyeballs. So those gators saved my eyeballs, right? Shout out to gators. Yeah, shout out to gators, big time. I wrote him a letter. Balls. I wrote him a letter, you know, and they sent me a brand new pair of glasses. So it was pretty cool. Um, but uh, so I got to go home, and you know, most miserable time at home ever because they captured Saddam during that time. And um, you know, here's me, like, man, I should have been there for it, not knowing it was Delta, right? But you know, just your mindset. And so I'm at home drinking, and I get a phone call, like, you ready to go back? I'm like, absolutely. And I was really jacked up, right? And they're like, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to Guam, and you're going to get that troop out there ready to go to Mosul. I'm like, Mosul? Nothing goes on in Mosul. They're like, yeah, but you, you guys are going to go to Mosul. And it was really big letdown because we're like, dude, we're, I want to go, we're going to go to Fallujah. We're going to go to Ramadi. Like we, in our hearts, we were told nothing was going on in Mosul. What has happened is nothing was being reported from Mosul because if anybody, nobody died, they didn't report it. So I go to Guam. The uh, Bravo, uh, Charlie and Delta are out there. I show up. That was my original platoon. We go through a training package, pretty short, maybe three weeks. And um, <clears throat> off I go over to war, right? So we go to Mosul, and 
we landed Mosul, we're really let down because we found out our platoon commander chose Mosul. And I have, you know, nothing good to say about him whatsoever. Uh, he he should just he should have been stripped of his trident. He was the worst SEAL that I ever served with, enlisted or officer. And, you know, he ended up getting booted uh, while we were in Mosul anyway. But we found out he chose that because the, the mission was originally supposed to go up to the Syrian border and watch bad guys come across. Okay, well, what then? They're not armed. So it was a big letdown for us, right? <clears throat> and uh, I, I, it was just one of those things like, man, I was in the heat of the action. Now I'm going to come up here and do recons. And so we got to Mosul, and I remember the day we arrived, we're all just kind of like, ah, oh, we're here, whatever. And the Grom was there waiting on us. I love my Gromulan brothers and the Polish Grom. So never make a Polish joke around me because they're awesome dudes. They're the best warriors. They're just awesome, right? Mm. And so the Polish Grom are waiting on us, and literally the, uh, the FBI HRT shows up. People know the HRT is a very diverse organization. They work all over the world. And they show up, and they're like, here's seven targets. I'm like, no, we're here to do recon. <laughs> no, we need you to go do hits. And the, I think we were there two nights. On the second night, I went out with the HRT, our HRT guys in indigenous operation to gather intel, get video. And the next night, we were rolling, and we hit four targets that night. And that's what Mosul was for us for the next four months, mm-hmm. just rolling, like every night to where uh, Joe Bazzelli, who was our, our, our task unit commander, would basically like, hey, guys, we're taking the day off. And instead of guys like being aggro, like, no, we were like, dude, you know, just like, oh my God, like, as we, you know, there's times where we're hitting eight targets a night, right? Like, you don't ever train for that in the teams. And in the teams, you're always training for like 20 guys going on target into one house. And it was like, no, you four got this one, you four got that one, you four, you, you four are the blocking force. Next thing you know, you're doing one man room entries, you're doing everything that you were never trained to do. And for us, it wasn't about, you know, you kind of have to border in this place of what's safe, what's not safe, but it became about speed. Like, they're going to wake up. And they're, th- this is their home. We, we learned this while we were there. The reason nobody went to Mosul is because this is where the bad guys were. Like, this is before Ramadi. Like, they were just untouched. Their money was there, everything. And they were, it was a massive city, right? Ramadi is very condensed. Fallujah is very condensed. This is a gigantic city. They moved around comfortably. Nobody messed with them. Mm-hmm. So now we're there. And it, it, I, I, it's just, it was just like, I always kind of go back, like, was that a movie? Right? Because we're just, we're opping. And we get these days where we're standing down, and you're just like the complete let of like, you know, just, just 18 hours of sleep and then back at it again. And we just did that over and over. And part of my job up there was also doing indigenous operations. So I would dress civilian clothes. We'd steal cars off Target, take taxi cabs and, there's a book that came out about it called Codename Johnny Walker. Hmm. And so Johnny, I'm the one who vetted Johnny. I'm the guy who gave him his first gun. I was actually going to shoot him the first night I met him. Um, but uh, we're, we're really good friends now. He works for me now. But, um, you know, Johnny, myself, and the, the team that was with me, um, one of the guys is still on the team, so I won't say his name. We started doing a lot of, of intelligence gathering um, from a civilian closed level. So we're actually getting our own video for our own targets. Um, I would deploy from the vehicle with a camera taped around my finger and get, get actual addresses and get actually information on the door. And with Johnny, it was very easy because Johnny knew everything to do. Like there were things that I would do wrong. He's like, don't do that. Do it this way. You know, like I had to smoke up there. I never smoked cigarettes in my life. And Johnny's like, everybody smokes. Don't wear sunglasses. Get rid of the goatee. Cause I couldn't grow a beard. So he's like, nobody appears a goatee. So I only had a mustache. Cut my, I went there with long hairs and I had an Iraqi haircut. 
I didn't wear, just Joshua wore a business suit because the Moles Library wore business suits. So Johnny really was the key to us never getting busted because we're soft skin. Our QRF is always never near us. We have a chase vehicle and we have the, 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 the CTR, close target reconnaissance vehicle. And um, we just we pushed the limits, man. We did, we, 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 we just wrote, we did things that nobody was doing. And then we ended up taking that even further into op- to doing DAs with it. So taking civilian closed teams and doing direct action daytime missions, downtown Mosul, play either coffee shops, you know, like we knew where they were. We didn't know where they were at nighttime. So let's just go get them where they are. We know they meet every Wednesday for coffee. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And um, we had the leadership that was completely on board with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that leadership team doesn't get enough accolades. You know, Joe Bazzelli, Ron Culpepper, Alan Wing. Alan ended up, I think Alan is like a probably an admiral by now. You know, Gary Harsani, Tony Dunsty, just rock star dudes who were who were all about that mission and all about going completely entrusting us to to get that job done. And it was some conflict like anything, right? And but they listened. It was it was one time where I felt in my SEAL career where my voice was heard. You know, there were things that I argued about that I didn't want to do because of, you know, like dri- we used to drive the vehicles right at Target. I'm like, I'm not, we're not doing that. Like, no, 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 we have to, you need guns. I'm like, dude, four guys got killed in Baghdad because we drove up to the Target. And that's actually on the History Channel too, right? And yeah, they, 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 they were going to kill us. And it was the breaching charge that turned into Claymore to kill them. But it ended up being the wrong dudes. Right. And so that shit was sits in your conscience too. Like people are always like, oh, you guys are animals. Like, okay, well, I went into a house with guys who were bad, who we told were bad guys. And two days later, they're like, ah, oh, they weren't bad guys. They were just protecting their house. And okay, that may be like a brush of the brush off for you, but that, that's my, I'm the one who blew the charge. Mm-hmm. I'm the one who did those things. Right. And so there were things that I was like, we need to be very careful because I, I didn't want to be that guy who wanted, who killed women and children. You know, I mean, shooting is one thing, but with a breaching charge, I have control of it. I'm in complete control of that mission once my feet hit the ground. And so there were things that we would argue about that eventually they go, okay. Like, they wanted me to go manual a few times. I'm like, I'm not going manual. Like, you go manual. And, you know, at the very end, they wanted us to go knock and talk. So I go knock. And I'm like, okay, what if they don't come out? Well, then, you know, we'll just blow the charge. I'm like, then here, I'll show you how to do the charge. I ain't doing it. I'm not walking up to that door and, and freaking knocking on the door and say, come out with your hands up. I'm not a cop. You know, but uh, for the most part, those guys were, were just great, you know, and, and they, they had, a, we all had a mindset. We were here to fight. And, you know, it, it, we did so many, just so many diverse missions. Like it, it, I, I can't, it's so hard to, cause just, you just, there was nothing, nobody can, I can't compare it to anything. It was like brand new, you know, and, and, and then the rest of the team. So all by then all the whole team, still team seven was there. So now you got Bravo doing a garbage truck mission, right? You got, uh, echo doing, they rode the boats in on a mission. You know, it's like, everybody's kind of like pushing like, Hey, we're going to take, we're going to get these guys. And I, I truly felt like we were winning the war, mm-hmm. right? I, I truly felt like between us, strikers, Marines and Naval special warfare, we were really winning. We were we were gutting that leadership of, of those Al Qaeda guys, Answer All Suna, Fedi and Saddam. We were gutting them. We were winning. And then Abu Ghraib. Right? And so the guy who I had gotten in a hand to hand fight with in, in Baghdad, his name was Matt El Jamadi, and he was a complete total we we were gonna we it was not a capture or kill mission, it was a kill or capture. So we were gonna kill him. He was a terrible human being, a bad guy, right? 
and he and I had got into it. We turned him over, and he ended up dying during his during custody. But he was going to die anyway, right? He and I got into a, a massive brawl, and he got severely injured. So, you know, the way they dealt with him at Abu Ghraib, which none of us, no SEALs were there, that didn't aid him. It, it killed him, right? So he just basically, he drowned in his own blood. The, the problem was is instead of just saying he drowned and he died, bad guy died, who cares? They, then it became, oh, my gosh, a bad guy died. So they went out and tried to get an American doctor to sign the death certificate, and they, by that meaning the government, um, you know, a government body, and the American doctor's like, we're not signing that thing. So they actually went out in town, got an Iraqi doctor to do a handwritten note of a death certificate. So the next day they come back to our compound and like, hey, we have the death certificate. And my uh, task unit commander, unfortunately, was the same guy who actually went after Eddie, was the one thing he did really good. He's like, I want to see a death certificate. And they, he demanded it and they brought it, but it was handwritten. And I remember all of the, they pull us all aside. They're like, write statements right now. Be factual in your statement. Make sure, he, I, I think him, Lieutenant Ledford basically had this almost a, a, an essence of what could be coming, right? Because we'd never written statements before. We'd never, you know, we had, we had eliminated people prior to that. We never wrote a statement. And that one mission, write a statement because they want to know that we, every, I want everybody to know we turned this guy over. We left Target. That guy was in a different vehicle. We never saw him again. So fast forward to Mosul, I had this CID guy come up and he's like, hey, I'm investigating for murder. I'm like, by then I'm like, which dude? You know, like we've been here for a while. And this guy, Matt al Jamadi didn't even remember anything. And so came home from deployment and uh, then it started hitting the media. And there was something else that I, that I left out. While we were all, we had all come together in Baghdad, and everybody's kind of going to their different units, different areas of operation, uh, a SEAL named Jeff Hopper got caught stealing another SEAL's body armor. So he was actually wearing that body armor as the teams were splitting. And uh, my, one of my really good friends, Jason Torrey, saw it. And so the whole camp was searched multiple times for this body armor, right? So you can't, you can't be any lower of a human being than not only just to steal, but to steal your teammates' body armor. Life-saving Life-saving equipment. Life-saving equipment, and then lie about it. So he was one of those dirtbags, got kicked out from the teams because we were hurting on dudes, we brought him back, right? And uh, there was a period of time where a guy, that happened, right? You just you needed guys. So Jason Torrey saw it, stripped him of the body armor. They did a chief's mask right then and there and sent him home. So never heard from that dude again. Well, now the Abu Ghraib pictures hit the fan, and that dude requests mast. If you take my trident away, I'm going to tell everybody what we did at Abu Ghraib because of the photo of the guy that I had gotten into it with. He's called the man on ice. And that dude opened up a box so gigantic, you would have thought we had assassinated a president. That's the way we were treated. So we came home from this deployment, massively successful deployment, and next thing you know, they're like, NCIS wants to talk to you. And they didn't tell us, they didn't tell us we investigated. They're like, NCIS wants to debrief you. Okay, now you're telling this to a bunch of Naval Special Warfare operators who are normally used to debriefing. Debriefing, we debrief everything. So hoodlums, i.e. Dan Cirillo, who are from the hood, know that criminal investigative bodies don't debrief you. They investigate you. So I'm like, I ain't saying shit. And do I need a lawyer, right? Not everybody took that stance. And so some, one or two guys talked, and the thing was, 
we were never briefed on the word EPW. We were never briefed on the word detainee. Those words didn't exist in our language. We were never read no book of Geneva Conventions. We were told silence, segregate, sequester, the five S's, whatever, right? Okay. And so part of that was shock, right? We make shock and awe. Like you make a statement when you capture these dudes. They're bad guys. And innocent things that we did, normal, normal operations became crimes, i.e. putting tape on guys' mouths, i.e. when they're yelling and screaming, whacking them, punching them in the face to shut them up. Sure. You know, those became crimes. And you're like, hold on, we're on target. And this guy's screaming his lungs out. You know, we're trying to move through this. We're, we're, we're patrolling back to our vehicles. This guy's screaming. What do you want me to do? You want me to shoot him? You know, which is literally, we, we talked about all the time. Like, we should shoot him. Of course, she had really good, our good our leadership was like, can't just shoot him. I'm like, why not? <laughs> what would they do to you? Yeah, you- exactly, right? And so, anyway, this investigation starts, and th- this is the thing. Like, I, I don't have it. I had a lot of animosity back then. I don't anymore because everybody's just doing their job. But you, when you talk about NCIS and the fact that they have a TV show just sickens me because all they really do is investigate guys smoking weed and steal, stealing from each other on a yeah. ship. They have no job. Right, like I, I applied to every other federal agency out there, and this is the one that accepted me. Yeah, and that's the reality. They're the rent cops. Yeah, the, of the it, Navy. It, yeah. and they prey on active duty guys. That's I, I've they did. I, yeah, whatever. And um, they man, they took hook, line, and sinker. I mean, they bid off in this thing. They they took it as fast as fast as far. And next thing you know, like guys are getting homes are getting searched, and guys are getting picked up from the airport for missions and. Well, the guy, the guy that you, the guy that you got in the brawl with and hurt, right? That eventually died. It, I mean, he was ISIS. He was Al Qaeda. He was uh, Fedi and Saddam. Okay, and so I mean, like, he's a colonel in Fedi and Saddam. He's a big wig. Then, then how come I, I'm confused? Like, how come you're getting on trial for murder? Is this all because? So, the, what I'm getting from it is Abu Ghraib happened. Yeah, right. That caused a huge international incident. So then after that incident, they really started hammering down on, I think that's where the yeah, shooter's Jeff, statements. Ho- Jeff Hopper saw the photos in Abu Ghraib. So Abu Ghraib was going on. It's a scandal. Like yeah. We're all kind of like, that sucks for those guys, right? Like, that sucks. Even when they showed the picture of Manadel, I didn't recognize that photo, right? Because it had been so long. Like Because they, they, never, they never used the word seal ever. And the next thing I know, they were like, hey, dude, this is starting to come back at us. Like, why? And then we found out that Jeff Hopper had gone to the Commodore and basically didn't basically did say, if you take my trident away, I will tell the press everything we did at Abu Ghraib. The fact that that guy was in that photo gave Jeff the proof that we were part of it, even though none of us had ever been there. Like, the farthest I've been to Abu Ghraib was a parking lot, right? And there's a sign. What ended up saving me was a sign in log. Mm-hmm. Anybody who walks into the army, you're not going to walk by the army without signing in, right? <laughs> and that's what eventually got me, you know, helped me. So, you know, NCIS does their thing, and it's ugly. It's terrible, you know. And um, things like, you know, I was charged with 27 counts of murder, manslaughter, assault, you, you name it. I mean, and the, the way I was treated, so I go over to Warcom. The, the first time I go to Warcom, I'm go over there as a hero. They, they, they want to talk to me, everything. The fourth time I went over there, this guy, Cap Madrozo, who ended up getting kicked off the case, takes my paperwork and throws it at me. He's like, sign that. I'm like, I ain't signing it. Mm-hmm. He's like, you have to sign it. I'm like, I don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, the, and the JAG is there. His name's Dominic Jones. I'm like, are you? he's like, I represent the command. I'm like, oh, today you represent the command. Because mm-hmm. yesterday you were telling me what to do. But okay. 
right? And so I, I was like, I'm not signing it. And so I literally drove right to a lawyer's office. I knew my buddy was a lawyer. He's like, go call John Tranberg. So I drove up to North County, John Tranberg, and John was like, you don't say, you don't say or sign anything. Well, what do you think it was? I mean, like behind it is just political. So that's what ended up coming out years later like, was. So the the backstory to this is one. You had the Jeff Jeff Hopper issue of him trying to save his neck, but then two, we were there really was no there was no defined line of what we could and couldn't do, right? There was just no defined line. Later on, we found out there was all kinds of lines that were being like blurred, moved, whatever. None of us knew that. We were told in the beginning, capture or kill. Then the by the end in Mosul, capture, detain, question, interrogate, turn over. Well, that part we found out later on was completely illegal. We weren't allowed to do that. But nobody told we were everybody knew we were doing it. That was command level. Mm-hmm. So years later, when I when this thing went on for years, by the way, I found out that RCO, Alex Krongard, his dad was Buzzy Krumgard, Director of Operations of the CIA, and his uncle's Fred Krumgard, Secretary General of the United States. Mm-hmm. We all got charged to save his neck. Fourteen of us went to Captain's Mast, Court Martial, Admiral's Mast, and that dude disappeared and became an admiral. And we all got sitting there literally holding back. I got $57,000 in legal fees for getting in a hand-to-hand fight that we were going to kill anyway. In the end of it, my charges were posing an unauthorized photo, because it was my camera, because our platoon camera had gotten shot, and using harsh verbal language to an enemy detainee war times two. That's what I pled guilty to. <laughs> Sorry. It's harsh it, verbal language. Harsh verbal language. And, I'm, and, and they were like, well, you made a false official statement, too. This was the best part. So they, they wouldn't let me take you know, get this deal because they're like, you got to admit to a, making a false official statement. Like, show me the false official statement. They're like, oh, you, the NCIS said you said it. I'm like, okay, show me the videotape. You got a video camera going. You had a tape recorder. Where's the audio? Where's the notes? And this guy, Special Agent Bratz, you know, he's like, uh, I had got to question him, luckily, right, during my Commodore's mask. I'm like, Special Agent Bratz, his whole career, I'm this, I'm that, I'm blah, 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 you know, whatever. Where's the videotape? Hmm. I don't know. Where's the audio tape? I don't know. Where's your notes? I don't know. Who wrote the charge sheet? I don't know. Who dictated your notes? I don't know. And I'm literally looking over there at Commodore O'Connell. Commodore O'Connell's just like, he's like, we don't need any more questions. He's like, I'm striking every one of those charges. Just done. And, and, and so we get done. Commodore O'Connell's like, you know, it says you're pleading guilty. I'm like, yeah, it was my camera. I go, the, here's the bad part, which I now have the photo. I go, that photo was on your quarter deck, framed. Uh, for like four months. So now it's an unauthorized photo. And he's like, you know, and uh, he goes, I go verbal language. I'm like, I'd love to lie, but it's me. You know, I, I, I guess, you know, like, yeah. okay, you got me, Guilty. you know? And so, uh, you know, I took it on the chest. I took it on the chin. The The bad part was I probably could have got out of everything had I just ratted. And that was the big push the whole long, if you just tell us what this guy did, tell us what this guy did. I'm like, he didn't do anything. They really wanted Lieutenant Ledford really bad. And they're just like hammering on me. Like, just tell us, tell us Lieutenant Ledford told you to do it. Tell us. I'm like, that's lying. You want me to lie to save my neck? I'm like, I will never rat on a homeboy 
much less for a bad guy. Yeah. And they kept asking me, like, what are your thoughts on this? I'm like, we were sent to kill a bad guy. A bad guy died. You want to give, you want my thoughts on how he died? I just wish I would have done it faster and better. No. Like, how, because he drowned in his own blood, could we have slowed it down a little? Like, literally, I was like, this is, this, to me, the whole thing, all, all these years later, I'm still sitting here and go, this is just a joke. And, and, and it's funny because I bring this part up all the time because people, I know there's people who disagree with me, right? There's people who disagree with Eddie, oh, et cetera. Yeah. I'm like, okay, hold on. There's a video on YouTube of a helicopter pilot shooting a farmer, blowing the farmer's leg off, and the guy's rolling in circles, and the helicopter pilot shoots him some more. That is an unarmed person who no longer poses a threat. That is celebrated. There's a video of a Marine going through Fallujah in the middle of the battle, doing security rounds on a guy sitting next to a gun. That guy, that kept Marine, went to charge for murder. So this helicopter pilot who is under no threat whatsoever is celebrated. This Marine who is in a room with bad guys after fighting his way to the room is charged. Oh. The hypocrisy of that is so ridiculous. How come? What, which, what, how come you think that is? Because, I, I mean, I think that's... I think that, I'll give my two, two cents on it yeah, real please. quick. And this is just what I got from my, my whole situation is, you know, when you have these big incidents that have nothing to do with you, so I'm talking like Abu Ghraib, right, which became a huge international incident. So then the heat comes down on the military from up above, like you guys need to clean your shit up. And it doesn't matter what branch you're in. It's the once they're told, hey, you got to clean your shit up, tighten things up, that then rolls downhill just like any other order. So to give an example, like if an officer says, hey, be here by 06, that goes to the next officer says, be here by 0530. Then it goes down to 05. And then next thing you know, the enlisted guys are showing up four hours early. The same goes, the same type of uh, thing happens with these like, hey, clean your shit up, tighten it up. Well, the further that goes down the ranks, it becomes, we need someone, we need to hang someone out to dry. Someone needs to be made an example of. So the way I see it with your case is they saw, well, what's that hopper guy came said this and they're like we can use this as an example and all it is is to protect the institution that's it it's we will hang someone out to dry to protect the institution and they what they really would like to do is go off after a leader which is why they wanted ledford the officer like we can use him as the example like nsw doesn't play these games we don't abuse prisoners we don't do this and here's here's our scapegoat right here um it was the same same type of situation in mind where NSW was taking heat for, you know, drug usage and all these articles were coming out. Um, it just didn't look good for a couple of years. And then when my case came across, which it wasn't even anything at that time, it was just accusations. It's literally like we will use this person. And usually it's somebody with a good reputation that everybody likes because that way it sends that bigger of a message. Like, right. you see what we're doing to him? We can do this to you too. I, I, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Hundred percent, but it's, it, it and that's why none of it makes sense. Like even what you're saying, it was the same thing in my case. This was an ISIS fighter who we literally just droned. We killed two kill twenty something of his buddies. He barely survived, and then they're trying to charge me with premeditated murder mm -hmm. when the government just dropped a bomb on him, trying to do the same exact thing, kill him. Um, so I mean, you you can sit there and try and make logic and reason about why they make these decisions, but you're just going to drive yourself crazy because it really doesn't come down to right or wrong. It comes down to protecting the institution at all costs.
the image, the image of this, like it, it is it, it. Well, I'm guessing is it the just how it looks, like how it looks on the outside from the top down. Of like, oh, we can't have that in the press, or we can't have like, or if it already gets leaked to the press, then they have to respond by saying, here, here's our sacrificial lamb. Yeah, that was part of mine, right? Mm-hmm. So the press, I think mine was a big one because it was the first time the press had ever been part of naval special warfare. And so mine, I went through the entire, so we, instead of a grand jury in the military, I have an investigating officer's board. So I go through the grand investigating officer's board. All my charges are recommended for dismissal. The investigating officer says he has, NCIS has no credibility. He, he, anything they say, he's like, is not credible. Anything that Jeff Hopper says is not credible. He's like, so therefore, any charges that relate to those are should be, payoffs are supposed to be, records to be expunged and be cleared. So that's on like a Thursday. It's all weekend long, like, ah, right? Monday morning, I'm driving to work. My cell phone, my little flip phone rings. It's my next door neighbor, Auntie Carol. I'm like, what's up, Auntie Carol? She's like, did you read the paper today? I'm like, and what? She goes, you need to read the paper. I'm like, well, I'm driving, just read it to me. She goes, okay. Um, Admiral McGuire agrees that all charges against ABH1 should be dismissed. However, he's elected to court-martial him anyway. That's how I find out I was being court-martialed in the paper. So here's the best part. So I now, obviously, and, and I'm a lot different <laughs> back then than I am now. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an animal back then, right? So I drive to the command, and there's murder in my eyes. Like, I'm, somebody's getting it. I show up to the command. Shore patrols there waiting on me. Guess what? They didn't give Shore Patrol my name or my picture. So I walk right between. These guys are standing by the door of SEAL Team 7. I walk right by them, badge in. I don't even know they're there for me. I'm just like, oh, that's weird. Shore Patrol's here. <laughs> I walk up to the brand new CO, poor, poor Commander VZ. I walk up to him, and I'm just like, and I'm like ripping him apart. One angry taco. Oh, very angry. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you, how, how'd you get in here? Like, what do you do? Uh, the, 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 the intel officer's looking for you. I'm like, eh. And it was at that point, I, they were getting ready to do what they did with Eddie. I think they were going to detain me. I think they were going to detain me. And so I was smart enough to go, huh, I'm going to go to my locker, back in my car, and went, I went home, right? And it was just, I, I, it's so funny when, and not funny, I, wrong word. When oh, Eddie went through his thing, funny now. I literally sat there going, you guys didn't learn a thing. You didn't learn a thing. Right, and I, and that and that was that's probably my only issue with naval special warfare is I, I love the teams I love my career, I love the guys I work with, but they don't learn, right? I remember when the war first started, we had a, a senior chief come back from the war, and there was an AK in his bag. They had a complete public Commodore's mask for him. The entire naval special warfare. The last thing I know about the SEAL teams is another SEAL, who was on a mission to kill Taliban. There happened to be a, a aid worker there they didn't know about. And during a massive firefight, he threw a grenade, and that aid worker died. The command lied. And then later on, they were like, he lied. He, he sat there. He's like, I've never lied. I, I, I told you I threw the grenade. I told you I was trying to get to this Taliban guy. Their way of dealing with him was to do a command muster and kick him out of the team in front of the entire command. And I sit there, and I'm like, and you wonder why guys kill themselves. Well, because the community itself is based around shame. Yeah. That's that's how, I mean, and, you know, that sounds horrible, and it is, but at the same time, that's how we are so good at our jobs is because we're being judged constantly from our peers, the people that 
we work for and the people below us at all times. And then if you mess up, you know, it's, it's a shame based system. So it can be something as little as, Oh, I, uh, forgot to bring my, my weapon. And that's not a little thing. I'm just using this as an example, but I forgot to bring my weapon to a training evolution. You better believe you're going to get shamed, ridiculed in front of everybody. And not only that, they're going to be talking, that's going to spread for to, years. Yeah. Along the other community. And you will be known as the piece of shit who forgot his weapon because you made that one mistake. Now, hopefully you learn from that mistake and don't do it again. But the problem is the fact that people get shamed to that level, that has an effect on individuals, you know, and they're, they're pretty much go trying to go through their career while getting ridiculed and trying to like, uh, you know, free their name again. Like I just want to be back to where I was and that it's a long road. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I struggled with it for a long time. Like afterward, you know, I, I thought about staying in, you know, I thought about like redeeming myself and the team and all this stuff. And I remember my wife looked at me and she's like, you're crazy. She's like, you did everything they wanted you to do. She's like, you volunteered for every deployment. She's like, you got hurt and you went right back. She's like, you, 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 you never wavered. And this is the way they treat you. She goes, if you reenlist, I'm not going to divorce you. I'm going to Hawaii because you're just going to die. He's like, she's like, they're going to use you until you're dead. And they will. And they, and they, you know, and I sat back for a long time and, you know, it was to me, I still sit back and I go, best thing that ever happened to me. Like Eddie and I were talking about today because I would probably just be retiring. I, I, I would have never gotten out and I'd probably be divorced. I definitely wouldn't have a relationship with my kids. And, you know, some guys made it through. I don't think I would have, right? Because I, I think I was barely holding on to my marriage anyway because I was a wild man, right? And I loved being a team guy. The more I was gone, like, I, my bros, you know? And the more I kind of climbed the ladder, the more committed I came to my men, and my wife was always secondary. And, 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 and I'm, so, I'm so lucky she stayed, right? But, you know, I get out, and, uh, you know, it took me a long time. You know, I wrote a book. And the, probably the best thing that I ever did was not publish that book because I dropped some bombs <laughs> in that book, bro. I dropped some bombs, you know what I'm saying? And um, I, I remember reading it about when it was, it was finished, and I remember reading it, and I'm like, you sound like a pissed-off asshole. Right, like, I mean, because I, 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 I definitely didn't pull back on anything. And so I put that book in a safe, and I basically said, you know what? They gave you what you needed. Now go, now go get it for yourself. And you know, I was lucky. I, 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 I learned what I learned, and that was time for me to move on. I ended up hooking up with a, with another guy, you know, who ended up kind of, of of setting me on another path. And you know, he he's climbed a corporate ladder. His name's Jim Brooks, and he gave me an opportunity to go get into security, and uh, which has led me where I'm at. You know, I left I left there. I did a little bit of government contracting. And everybody kind of does that. And uh, then I got hired by the Allen family to go up to uh, Seattle. And so I didn't know who Paul Allen was. You know, like, oh, I thought we actually thought we were going to Seattle to run ops. because It was so secretive. Like, you show up to the airport, wear a red jacket, stand at this carousel. You know, a dude's going to come by. So I'm kind of sitting there, and I'm like, I'm looking next to me, and my buddy Eric Long's there. I'm like, creepy. He's like, taco. I'm like, what you doing here? He's like, I'm here for that thing. You here for that thing? I'm here for that thing, too. Because we totally thought, like, this is hey, we're deep, deep cover <laughs> shit, right? This is the way they treated it. And this bald-headed goatee guy kept walking by. 
And I go, I bet you that dude's looking for us. He looks like a contractor. It's all contractors look like, right? Team guys kind of don't fit the most. We always grow our hair long. Like, we're rebellious. And the contractors all shaved him the goatee. And, and I'm like, hey, bro, you looking for us? He goes, the grass is green. I'm like, ah, John has a long mustache. Whatever, motherfucker, let's go, right? You're looking for us. <laughs> so we get in the vehicle. <laughs> Biometrics, this whole gig. We go to this beautiful estate. And I walk in this room, you know, and it's like walking in a cheers. Taco! All my bros are in there, right? So one of my bros, Jim Hine, is actually finishing up rowing across the Atlantic Ocean as we speak. So he's been on the, him, him and another, uh, some other seals been rowing across the Atlantic. So I walk in the first place, he's Jimbo. Jimbo, what's up? Right, we're all team one buddies. I'm like, all right, man, what are we doing? I'm like, you know, what kind of guns we got? What kind of body armor we got? Like, who, who's getting it, dude? He's like, no, we're guarding little fat kids. I'm like, no, 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 ha, ha, ha. That's a cover story. All right, cover story. He's like, no, no, no. Not a cover story. I'm like, ha, ha, ha. He's like, uh, uh. I'm like, come on, bro. He's like, uh, uh. He's like, you're going to pay us $30,000 a month. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> okay, but different story, different story. So uh, and that led me to Seattle. And uh, I worked for the Allen family for six years. You know, I started as a contractor, became an employee, and uh, got to be around the, the, the three children, which is Paul's uh, nieces and nephew. Uh, niece and nephews and uh man i got really close to those kids they were awesome you know uh i think one of them will end up being the leader of the seahawks one day he's an amazing young man and uh, i was just spent a lot of time with those kids i was on the kids team and how they get selected for the kids team they're like you have kids oh (laughs) great you like boats you're on the boat team (laughs) you know like uh you're funny you're with jody yeah you're serious you're with paul that's literally how we got selected oh and you're old you're grandma that's it was like i'm on the kids team because i have kids you know, and so I, that was probably the greatest security job. I don't think it can ever be created again. So Paul had almost died from lymphoma, right? Or Lana Hutchinson's lymphoma. And so he retired from Microsoft and he had, I think, $25 billion. And Paul wanted to live, right? And Paul wanted to live without limits. And so Paul hired 26 of us and Paul worked us like mules but it was great work, right? It was, I want to go to the Super Bowl. Okay, tomorrow, figure it out. And I learned, I went to every Super Bowl for seven years. I went to NBA, every NBA All-Star game for like five years. Academy Awards, Cannes Film Festivals, Sundance, massive trips to Africa, Antarctica. I mean, you we, finding the Bismarck, finding the Yamato. There was no limits to what Paul wanted to do adventure-wise. And no, there was no, it was again, Iraq in the beginning, there was no playbook. You couldn't call anybody. You'd have to call somebody like, Hey dude, I'm coming to, I'm coming to Zambia tomorrow. Who do I call? They're like, Oh, let me call 27 people. Okay. Call this dude. And so you're on, and and, then here's the bad part of it, Paul, you're on your way to Zambia. And all of a sudden you're like, Hey, there's supposed to be green down there. Why is there brown sand? I changed his mind. (laughs) <laughs> we're going to Morocco instead. You're like, and it's Blackberry, right? So now you're trying to get vehicles, hotels, all this shit lined up because the PAs didn't travel with us, right? And so, you know, now that I lead a security company, you know, when I start meeting with clients all the time, they're like, okay, executive protection. I'm like, ah, get rid of that executive protection word. We're executive support, executive support. Like we, and we can do protection. I go, our job is you keeping your life mobile. How do we speed your life up? How do we make your life easier? And um, as, 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 as trying as that job was, it was a very trying moments because you're taking a group of barbarians. All of us had been in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
putting us in Seattle, a very liberal city in a corporate environment, which we got massive amounts of trouble for our emails. Um, and it was the greatest assimilation you could probably ever be done. So out of 26 of us, 18 of us lasted. And then over the years, it kind of dwindled down. And I've never had an opportunity. And in the, in the, in the moment, I hated it. Right, like, this is stupid. This is not the way it should be done. We should, we, you should be telling, like, because you're a team guy. There's rules. There's, like, procedure. Okay, this is a billionaire, and he could give two shits about your procedure. And you're, not, you're definitely not going to tell him, right? And uh, it was the greatest learning experience ever. And it, it's so funny now because I obviously have a, a group of guys who work for me. And every now and then they'll complain. And, and I, I, me and my, my group of guys who are still with me from those Vulcan days will look at each other like, you just kind of shake your head like you, you, you're, you're preaching the wrong choir, homie. You know, I remember sleeping with two different bags next to my bed, Blackberry on my chest, and my wife, like, phone would ring. My wife's like, where are we going to? I'm like, SeaTac. <laughs> like, which bag? I'm like, I don't know. And a lot of times just call her like, on my way to SeaTac, grab the yellow bag. You know, like, and then you land somewhere and you show up with winter gear, and next thing you know, it's summertime. You're like going to the store. And, you know, money, money, money meant nothing, you know, and – it, it was, it I had such a good time. You know, I look back on it. And I was just like, it, it, you know, like the teams greatest, greatest period of my life. I learned so much and it got me, it is the beginning of the get to me where I'm at, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. It, and you started from, I mean, just like in the teams, you start from the bottom and yeah. you learn your way up, gain experience and with that experience comes knowledge. And then you're next thing you know, you're in a leadership position. It's the same. It sounds like the same gig. You started doing the security where, like you said, there was no playbook. You're like, we're figuring this shit out from the beginning. And which what you did, you built a foundation and now you have the security, you know, company. It's funny to hear, you know, talk about the guys like, oh, bitching about stuff. And you're like, dude, stop. Yeah. Like we've, we started this. <laughs> we, we, did, we, we did all the front work already. Like you guys have it good. Oh yeah. It's funny. Right. Like I had one of my guys, you know, he, uh, another company hired him. He's like, yeah, they're going to pay me 200. And I just want to see if you're like going to match it. I'm like, bro, you ain't worth 120. You, you can leave. Like you, uh, the dude who I paid two hundred to did Super Bowls, Academy Award. Like that dude's worth two fifty to me. You you've never left Austin. You're a diamond dozen, home. You know, and so you know I did that, and uh, I, I I it was the first time ever I was being a parent too, right? Like I show up to show up to Seattle and really had had not had contact with my kids for seven years. You know, well, Dominic, no contact with Dominic for 12 years, you know, weekends. Taylor was eight at the time, so really no contact with Taylor for five of those years. And then Kellen, really no contact at all. Like, Kellen used to go into stores and would see other big brown dudes like, Daddy! Daddy was just a bag of laundry, like, every four days a month type thing, right? You know, because you're a team guy. And so I, like, really got into being a dad and got into coaching my kids and and uh, had, had you know, a good and bad thing happen. I got to see my kids get coached by a complete moron. And I literally looked at my wife, I'm like, nobody's ever coaching my kids again. And before I had left the teams, I'd always had this idea that I wanted to coach kids. Big open field across the street from my house. I'm like, I should buy that one day. But it was like 200 grand. I'm like, dude, I don't have 200 grand. You know, but that's big money, right? Still big money. And um, so I go up to Seattle, I'm coaching the kids, whatever, and, and we wanted to start a jiu-jitsu program, fighting program for the at the, at the executive protection team. Mm-hmm. And the, a lot of the insurance people came back like, okay, you got to have a fitness program to go along with it. So they're like, okay, there's this thing called CrossFit. 
well, we all knew what it was. And so the, one of the guys who started CrossFit, Dave Warner, was a team guy. He's up in Seattle. So we all go and take some classes from Dave, and but it's a long drive, right? Dave is like up here in northern Seattle. We're all the way here in Bellevue. And, uh, you know, basically they're like, hey, we need to get this kind of – we have the money. We need to kind of do our own thing. Uh, but we need to have a certified coach. And it's literally everybody looks at me and Ryan Robinson. So Ryan and I are built the same, right? We're short little fat guys. And Ryan's an officer and I'm enlisted. We, they'll look at both of us and they're like, not Ryan, Taco. <laughs> You're going to cross the certified, right? You know, I love Ryan. We call Ryan a red face. He's always so angry, right? So uh, they, they send me down to get CrossFit certified. And, of course, I go in there like, I know everything about fitness. I'm a team guy. And it turns out we team guys don't know shit about fitness, right? So I really learned the mechanics of fitness. I really learned how mechanics of the body move. Just a lot of good information. You know, Dave Castro took really good care of me, Andy Stump, and, you know, ended up learning the, the, the initial phases of CrossFit and how it could benefit you. You know, I'd always done it, but I didn't never know the science behind it. And as I bit off hook, line, and sinker into it over the next eight years, opened some gyms, uh, and by the time I was done, had, had ownership in four different gyms and, you know, got all the certs and everything like that and really started learning the science of how to program for the human body at different levels of capacity and age. It developed a really big training program for candidates. So we were very successful. I think we have 30-plus kids we've trained who got tridents. And uh, we used to run, they'd all run around the gym with camis and white shirts, and I'd spray them down and... I did all the workouts with them. You know, back then I was a lot before, before a lot of the injuries set in. You know, I was really into fitness, really into working like a, out. Like a buds for kids. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool these, well, these are all these are all teenage to, you know, basically seven. Well, Blaine was the youngest. Blaine was 14 when he started, um, all the way to about 24. And in order to be in my program, you had to be a year out from buds. I wouldn't train you inside of a year. Right. And then we started getting some Marines. We started getting some Air Force guys, et cetera. And um, those guys, a lot of those guys are still in the teams. I think only two are out of the teams now. Everybody else is still in. They're like Chiefs, C6s, et cetera. And I see them all the time. They're great guys that come stay with me in my house. And one of them saved my life. Uh, I had a stroke. And uh, he's a SEAL medic. And he basically diagnosed me right on the spot and was able to get me to the hospital and get the TAP in, my, in me. And I have no residuals from it, right? But, uh, you know, great program. Got into coaching kids. Had a really big kids program. I uh, got really into Bellevue football, and if people don't know what Bellevue football is, they made a movie called When the Game Stands Tall. It's when Bellevue beat De La Salle. De La Salle was 12 years undefeated. Bellevue came in, beat them with a freshman quarterback, never threw a pass, and never punted. And uh, I got to be part of that Bellevue dynasty. Butch Gontroff, the AP coach of the decade, you know, 15-something state titles, a national title. You know, wow. Buda Baker, Miles Jack, David DeCastro were all, all pros in the league. You know, some just some amazing, amazing young men. And it's so different because football, you can buy, you can somewhat buy players. What I mean by that is if you can afford to go to a private school, you can build a really big program, right? So I coach at Lipscomb now, and we can, people move in out of state to come play for Lipscomb. Mm -hmm. They have, they have money. The school has a lot of money. Well, Bellevue is a public school. And in Bellevue was very wealthy community. So most of the kids look like you two skinny little rich white kids and we kicked the snot out of everybody i mean we were so cocky we were like we'll take the pads off and play you in the parking lot we came we went to texas we went to california we went to compton to go play right we, we didn't know if we we're gonna get out of that game alive because by halftime them dudes were like they were they were telling the referees we're gonna kill you we're gonna kill you <laughs> halftime right <laughs> so we come out of that game and we won 
And then by the end of the game, like, you guys can really play some football. Like, we just want to get out of here, bro. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Butch, Butch taught me the missing links of leadership that I didn't learn in the team. So in the teams, I learned leadership with a, with a fist. And then Butch taught me the, the compassionate side of leadership of how to reach young men without the fist. Cause I didn't understand it. I'd never had compassion in my life. I was always taught by the fist when I was an athlete, whatever I was telling Eddie, you know, one, we had three rules, right? Rule one, you don't use whistles at practice. So in football, play to the whistle, play the whistle. And one day I'm like, Butch, why don't we have whistles? He's like, what were you taught? I'm like, I taught play to the whistle. He's like, okay, I want, I want to play with people on the ground. He goes, I want my offensive lineman driving people to become fucking pieces of grass in the ground. He goes, I want my running backs running people over the face. He goes, I want my linebackers tackling people and driving them into the planting them in the earth. I was like, oh. he goes, so if I say play the whistle, what if they hear a false whistle? And so it's just discipline. And he brought me in. He's like, I want to, it was already militaristic, right? It was, it was one of the most amazing programs just to watch that team break the huddle. They still do it to this day. They run out of the huddle to the offensive line mm. for 40 plays, 50 plays a game, mm. right? One of the greatest football philosophies I've ever learned, there's no offense or defense. It's just 11 best men on the field, you know? And his idea is, who's the fastest kid? You're my fullback. And then he fills it in from there, right? Never throw the ball. I'm like, Butch, why don't we throw the ball? He's like, okay, there's probably five quarterbacks in this entire state. We play in 50-mile-an-hour winds and pouring down rain. Do you think we're going to get one of those quarterbacks every season? Mm -hmm. He goes, well, we can run the ball in the rain. And that he ran the wing tee to perfection. I, I just learned so much about – Everything. Rule two was never raise your voice, right? He never raised your voice to the kids. He, and, and I'm like, why not? He goes, these kids get yelled at in school. They get yelled at by their parents. Now they're here in the football field and you're yelling and screaming at them. Why would they want to keep playing? Ah, light bulb, right? And then uh, rule three was, you know, big, big thing was lead. And in the teams, you always hear lead, lead by example, lead by example, lead by example. But Butch was adamant about it. Like you don't coach a drill if you can't do the drill. And after 10 years of coaching, I think I was one of two coaches still left on the staff that he hadn't fired, right? Because he's just – coaches were accountable. If you want to coach here, you better be able to do what you're telling the players to do. You know, and for me, he gave me a lot of um, – what's, what's the word called? Basically, a lot of uh, uh, autonomy. Like, he's like, the weight room is your house. You own the weight room. And my rule was, you don't come in this weight room if you're not coming to, coming to play. So I wouldn't let coaches come in and coach the players. Like, hey, hey, they don't need you cheering them on. They don't need your motivation. You come in here to work out with them, but you don't come in here to try to coach them. It's my time. And I would do the workout. We'd go through strength, warm up, et cetera. And then when we get in our finals, all the calisthenics, I always let them. Again, they called me, you know, abs of Danimal, right? <clears throat> so I've always been able to have good abs. And uh, even though they're just one ab now, but uh, – it was so much fun, man. And I got to coach my kid all the way through school. I got to coach my daughter. And, you know, talk about one of the most healing things you can do is to give back and guide young men. And, you know, I think that really helped me post-war and post-trial and post-everything, you know. And, you know, as I stepped away from executive protection into being, becoming a business owner, I opened the CrossFit gyms and everything kind of grew and was, was just great. Like I literally had this period of time for about seven years where I had this, I, I think, you know, people would see my life and go, oh my God, you know, like people probably envied me. We didn't have much money, but we had love. We had we just, this wonderful life, right? 
And then it all just started unraveling, man. It literally was just like a zipper coming down. And it started, I had, you know, I'd met this guy. He was an incredibly wealthy guy. And he asked me to get him in shape to go hunt a goat. And I'm like, I'm not training you. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you're not worthy of my training. Join the regular classes. And, you know, little by little, I kind of warmed up to him, found out he was super rich, you know, go to his ranch. And, and uh, he, he got this Montana sheep tag and we go hunting and he's a really good guy. He's a super amazing guy. And, and um, we're, we've been doing this now for a few years and he's like, Hey, I want to learn to survive. I, I want to if my plane ever goes down to Alaska, how am I going to live? And so I, like, well, let's go to Montana. Let's just for five days go hunt, but not bring any food or water. You just live off. Let me show you what team guys do if we get in trouble, right? I'm going to teach you land nav. Like, I can teach you this in your yard, but we just got to do it, right? And so I literally pulled out the map and compass, and we were up there. We're to learn how to do water, purify water, start fires. Worst case scenario, we always train for that. Worst case, like, our tra- like, people talk about, you know, war. Like, war is easy. Yeah. Training is hard. We, we almost kill each other all we, The fact that I lived through training in the SEAL teams is what surprises me. War is easy, right? And so took him up there to the mountains. We're up there for five days. We did it like 50 miles. And uh, we had a whole other day to go. But this big lightning storm came, off, came on top of us on Warren Peaks. So we had to go on the sheer cliff to get down. So we hike all the way down, you know, all day long, just hiking down from deadfalls. And, and me and another team named Chris Robinson. And uh, Chris has been at Team 7 with me, right? So we get finally get to Ryan to Brian's uh, ranch, and we go to sleep. We get all liquored up that night, and wake up the next morning. Breakfast burritos, you know, Eddie and I had breakfast burritos, oh, yeah. right? And it's elk breakfast burritos. I'm like, oh, elk. <laughs> and these names start rolling across the bottom of the TV, and I'm like, man, I recognize those names: Rob Reeves, Jonas Kelsel, Chris Campbell, J.T. Tomlinson, Heath Robinson. And I'm like, you know, John Foss. And I'm like, I know those dudes. Like, why are their names? And like, and, but it's not hitting me. Like, I, I can't comprehend this, this helicopter, you know, this shot down helicopter, these names. I can't comprehend it. So this is probably two, maybe a day, two days after extortion. And uh, that's how I found out that, you know, a, a good number of my friends had all just died. And I don't remember much. Right, I, I I didn't drink or anything. I remember just kind of like me and Chris Robinson. I think we both were just. I think that's what shock is, right? Because you can't have emotion. What do you do? Cry? You know, like if we're with this super rich guy. We're both feeling the same way. We're too proud to show it to each other. I'm like, you good? He, he's like, I'm good. You good? I'm like, I'm good. And I'm not good. I'm like sick to my stomach. I'm. I'm like, I'm almost crying right now just thinking about that day, right? And I remember we flew home and we're on Brian's plane and uh, Sarah Hasselback, Matt Hasselback's wife, had wrote me. She's like, are you doing okay? So I was training Matt Hasselback privately um, when I owned my gym, a bunch of, a couple of NFL quarterbacks and had a big NFL program. And uh, Sarah's like, are you okay? And I remember just writing her this text message. And it was, it's probably the, the ramblings of a crazy, I don't even know what I said. But it was just every emotion you know, like, God, ooh, this, is, this is a hard one to talk about. Uh, <clears throat> every emotion is coming, and I'm, and I'm just writing it. And I hit send, and, and uh, yeah. I, I just remember, like, you know, maybe a week, two weeks later, you know, I, I went to the funerals, and I just, it just, it was like this, like, I, I guess that's what shock is. 
You just can't fathom it. Like, you know, the only nightmares I have are of Rob Reeves. And they're not nightmares. I, I wake up crying because I miss him so much because he made me laugh. All right, Robbie was just the funniest dude, and I loved him so much, and he saved my life. All right, Robbie put himself in harm's way in front of me in Mosul multiple times. And it, it just gutted me, right? And I, I remember I kind of fell in this black hole, and, you know, I wasn't part of the executive production team anymore, so all those guys are working, so it's just me. Like, it's the first time I was ever just a single SEAL. Like, those guys would every, see them every now and then they're home, but in that moment, that those, like, 10 days, two weeks, whatever, there were no other SEALs. And this, so there's, therefore, nobody I can, like... Relate to or talk to about it. Yeah, like, holy... F- you know, because yeah. we, we had lost guys in ones and twos, right? Never lost that many guys. And the fact you just knew... I mean, you just knew everybody. You're like... Hey, you know, like, you just, like... I don't know what to say. Like, I don't even know how to describe it, right? And so I really went into this deep funk and, uh, you know, snapped myself out of it. I said, okay, hey, man, you got to snap out of this funk. And I started training for an Ironman. And I'm like, every year I had done some kind of big training event to raise money for you know, the guys we were losing. And so I did this Ironman. It was the greatest healing experience of my life. Because I didn't understand healing. Because, you know, like, I just don't think I could, fa- I, don't, I don't think I've ever even articulated trauma. Right, not in the way it's explained. And so I started training for this Ironman and had never owned a bike. Right? I hadn't ridden a bicycle since like eighth grade. So I had this guy named Cody Hermata, and I love Cody to death. Him and his brother, his brother works for me now. Cody will work for me when we open our, we're going to have a training facility one day. And so Cody reels in this bike, and it's like a $6,000 Scott Plasma 2. And he's like, hey, this is my Ironman bike. You can have it. And I'm like, you, he's like, oh, I don't use it anymore. You know, he's, he's training to become an SF guy, and now he's an SF guy, right? And um, he gives me this bike. And I crash on it the first three rides I do. <laughs> but uh, it, became, it, became, uh, it became the first time where I felt like a seal again. Because one thing, like CrossFit's awesome. I had a great time doing it. But I got a lot of injuries from it, right? But what seals do is we walk all night long. And then we do a CrossFit workout for five minutes. And then we walk all night long back. We swim. And so training for an Ironman made me feel like a frogman again. Hours upon hours of nothingness. But you just smile because, like, I, I really, in, those, in, that, in that process of that year, I fell in love with God. I fell in love with the gift that God had given me of this body that could do these things. You know, riding a bike in Seattle is hard, right? Swimming was always easy for me, but... And swimming open water in Seattle at like 42 degrees, that was not fun. But, you know, I felt felt like a team guy. Running just sucked because by then, like, I had already had hip surgery and knee surgery, seven knee surgeries and, you know, my back surgery and shoulders. And so, you know, the explosion did a lot of damage to me that, you know, years later I dealt with. So the running, where I used to be this great runner, now I'm not a great runner. And it took me a long time to find the right shoes. had to find hokas and that solved a lot of issues. But it took me a long time to even understand nutrition you know, so I ended up having to understand that I had to eat every 45 minutes because I kept crashing. Like, I just, well, I just thought, like, teams, we eat once. Yeah. You, you, you're never eating the SEAL teams. And you just not, like, here's a piece of jerky. Like, you have one bag of jerky for, like, 20 guys. Here's a piece. You just never eat. And so I, I, had, to, I had to, like, everything that I knew as a team guy just being hard. Well, now I'm an old man. And uh, you had to, like, learn nutrition, supplementation. And, 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 and my fitness level went through the roof. Right. Like I, 
I got to wear CrossFit workouts, crushing them, running, swimming, riding the bike. Just, I just love Like, it was a full-time job, eight hours a day. The bad thing was, so then I did the Ironman, right? A great time, the Coeur d'Alene Ironman, one of the, one of the hard Ironmans. Uh, I got to do it with my, my, again, my, one, my best friend from high school, Frankie Troyeski. And um, we, we, had a, we had a blast. We had a blast. I made the mistake after that, though, of doing the worst thing that any business owner can do. I read the Yelp reviews. And people, there was 99% great reviews on my CrossFit Bellevue um, Yelp page. There are about 10 where they're like, Dan is unreachable. All he does is train all day. Uh, Dan is, you know, um, they, we're not allowed. The fact that we can't speak to Dan when he's on his bike and, you know, Dan can't be. Like, it was just kind of like, did you come to the gym to be with Dan? Like, I thought you came to this 25,000 square foot gym to work out. Like, I have t- 10 coaches. I coach my class. I'm a, it's my training time. Like, you know, it got so bad at the, at, at, at the gym that I'd have to turn the lights off to train because I couldn't get a workout because people want to talk to me. And I, I get that, right? But I'm like, I'm just, this is, I'm doing this for me. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to keep myself from going insane. And, I, you know, I read those, I read those uh, reviews, and, man, they, they gutted me. Like, and, and it was just came to a point where I was so in this high and that was the beginning of, so I had this first downfall, had a trial of downfall, the helicopter goes downfall, I'm back in this high, and the downfall begins. And the downfall never ended. The next thing that happens is we have this uh, guy come in the gym. He's like, hey, I'm from the state. Um, I'm going to give you a rebate if you change all your lights from fluorescent to LED. How much? Six grand. I'm like, Shh, yeah, right on. So I call my buddy Corey, who's an electrician. I'm like, hey, Corey, change all these lights. Yeah, two grand. I'm like, phew, that's four grand. All right? Corey changes all the lights. Another inspector comes in. She's like, oh, lights look great. Your certification goes, but what about that? What about this? What about 27 violations later, I'm like, I, but I don't even own, I, I just rent this place. Like, I have no idea about gradient of a handicapped parking spot and a parking study, traffic study. Next thing you know, we're, spot, we're spending money. Like to do all these things this chick wants to do. By the time she's done with her stuff, she wants to just cut a hole in a six foot, a wall that's six feet thick for a handicap access. I'm like, but I don't have any handicap people. So at this point, I went from 300 parking spaces. Oh, this that happened before that. So I had 300 parking spaces, which is in my brain, we were successful because of Dan Cerullo. By the way, that's not true. We were successful because Seattle's really hard to find parking, and we had 300 parking spaces. And then the city of Bellevue came in and said, we're going to take that parking lot and turn it into a trash dump. We never think it affects your business, right? So we had, like, th- these doors. We had this trail out back in these woods. And one day I opened the door as a fence. And lo and behold, people don't like to walk to a gym in the rain. It's really weird. You know, it's just weird. And the um, beginning of our membership started declining. And then the, this coding issue and – and uh, by the time I was done, I had six parking spaces. So 27,000 square foot gym, 25,000 square foot gym, and six parking spaces. And I shared this with these other businesses. There's probably 100 parking spaces total. So now people are getting fights in the parking lot. People are blocking each other in, whatever. And this lady comes in. She's like, three of those parking spaces have to be handicapped because of your capacity. So my gym had a 5,000 square foot f- football field in it an elite athlete training area, strongman area, and a full 27-station CrossFit gym, right? So we, we were pumping. We could run three classes at a time. I had to close off half of my gym just so I wouldn't have to do those parking bases. So my whole football field got torn out. My elite I literally just put a fence up of just dead space. 
And I'm just like, I thought you were like supposed to promote small business. So story keeps going. By the time it's over, it's close to over, um, we're like a month from being solvent. We've spent every dollar we've ever made on lawyers, on everything you can think of to try to satisfy these violations. I show up to the city of Bellevue, we have a hearing with a fire marshal, the mayor, all these things, because, you know, by now I'm hired an attorney who's like fighting this. And and they're like, okay, we want to meet with you, whatever. And I I put my dress blues on. I show up there and they're like, you know, I'm like, guys, here's the deal. In one month, I will be bankrupt. And all I'm trying to do is train people. And they're like, we never intended for this to happen. That, that inspector, she actually got fired, et cetera. I'm like, okay, well, everything that I've made over the last seven years is gone. It's gone. I don't have a fucking pot to piss in. And so I'm in this space where now I've, I've had to sell. So I had three houses where I was trying to be, have some mortgage income, have some rental income. I had to sell all three houses just to keep this gym going. And uh, I'm taking every job I can get. So I'm actually working a full-time job just to support my gym. But, hey, man, I don't complain. Just put your head down and grind, head down and grind, right? And so I basically make a decision like, hey, I, I need to find a more lucrative job to keep this. So I at least try to sell this thing, do something, right? And uh, my buddy Jeff Gonzalez, he's run, he ran the, the range at Austin. And so I go down there, I do a shooting event with him. I pass the test. He's like, I want you to come back. So I'm on my way back from my second trip and my wife and I were having an intimate moment, and she's like, hey, feel this. And I feel it, and there's a lump. There's actually like two or three lumps. And I'm like, baby, you need to go get that checked. And she'd been coughing for like a year. I'm like, baby, you need to go get that checked. She's like, oh, I'm good. I'm like, no, no, please, just for me. Just, just at least go get the cough checked out, you know? So I'm fly, I fly to, 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 Dallas, to Austin, and I'm in the L.A. airport, and my phone rings, and it's her. And she's like, uh, I just, the test results came back. I, I, have, I have lymphoma. I have uh, uh um, lymph node and breast cancer. And I remember just sitting there in the LA airport, gate 64B, my nose in a corner, just <laughs> crying. Yeah. Crying like, like complete breakdown. Right. And, uh, yeah, man, that, that, it just breakdown. Like, holy shit. You know, like in, in that moment you realize I'm not a good husband. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm I don't even know what to, how to articulate it. Right. And uh, um, I immediately went to the agent. I'm like, hey, my guns are on this plane. I need to get my guns off. And I, need, I need a flight to Seattle. I, I got to go home. So it, like, took me a couple hours. And you know, I'm explaining the story to him. And I'm trying not to, like, be this embarrassment, you know, big cry guy. And, uh, they, you know, they helped me out. And LA's not a really nice place where they want to help people, you know. I'm trying not to lose my cool. Fly home and... We, we began the, the battle, you know, I, I shouldn't say we, she began the battle. My wife was a fucking trooper, man. Like she was a trooper and, you know, she was so hard about it. Like, she's like, I'm, it, don't worry about it. I'm good. I'm good. Even when she was in labor, she was like, I'm having a contraction. I call her Helga the Horrible, right? Because Helga, <laughs> Hor- Helga the Horrible, she was my training partner. My wife's hard, right? Which is why my kids are hard and having a contraction okay, it's over. I'm like, Jesus woman, you know? <laughs> so, uh, she's going through the battle and, you know, her hair's starting to fall out, whatever. And, and, uh, she pulls me aside one day and she's like, I want you to shave my head. And I don't care who you are or what you think you are. You shave your wife's head 
and you tell me what kind of person you are. You tell me how hard you are. Because every... <laughs> every uh, stroke of that clipper was a casket for me. And by then there was a lot of caskets. And uh, I remember just like every one of them was Ty, was Glenn. <laughs> you know, Jason Freewall, like Indy, just like it just didn't stop, right? And, you know, Pepper. And like it was just like I don't remember much from there. Like I, I just remember like as she was going through this stuff, while she was awake, I would do my best to take care of her. And then when she would go to sleep, I would drink. I just like, I just need to calm down. Just so mad, right? So angry. And I've always been an angry guy. But at this point, it's this anger. Like, it's, um, I can't strangle it. I can't shoot it. I can't stab it. I can't do a fucking thing about it. And it's not ending. It won't stop. Like, it's not over tomorrow. It just keeps going. And in a month, and two months, and three months, and, you know, just, you get to a point where you're almost in pure hatred of everybody because everybody wants to help. You know, bless their hearts, but you're just like, fucking leave me alone. Stop asking me about me. And they're like, stop it. You know, take care of her. And then, 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 they, oh, then she's getting overwhelmed. And you know, we, we were so lucky, you know, uh, Tammy Wright and Tracy Oster, you know, and, and Patty McKnight were just rocks for her. Right, and and Tammy, you know, God, God, I love Tammy so much. She would just go lay it. <laughs> uh, she would just go lay in bed with Leilani, you know. And so I got lucky. I got another job, you know. And by now the gyms are just defunct. They're just, you know, and 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 I, I didn't even. I, I tried to sell them. I was able to sell like the client list, and you know, got everything done, and so, had a yard sale equipment. Probably the worst day of my life because I learned about people. You know, we had this big, we always did this big Toys for Tots uh, workout. And so, do this Toys for Tots workout. And when it was over, I laid all the equipment, uh, you know, for sale. And nobody helped me. Everybody sat there drinking beer. There's about 200 people in there. And nobody lifted the finger to help me until the very end. Where one guy came in and was like, hey, you need some help? And literally, you're talking about a, a whole, I don't know, it's 10,000 square feet of equipment. We had 10 of everything. We had 20 rowers, 10 bikes. 40 bars, you know, every person had, I think, 600 pounds of weight at every station. And I moved it all. And I dare anybody to ever challenge that. And I remember sitting there just looking at these people like, I hate you. I just hate you. Right? And, and I'm sitting there, everything that I own is going to get, is being sold for pennies. I remember when it was all done, just like closed the door, and I went home that night. And uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny because I don't know if you guys know who Zach Evanish is. So Zach actually called me on my bullshit. I wrote a post, and I, I, it was almost a, a suicidal post where I really said what I felt about myself as a failure, as a uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't I, di- I didn't wasn't kind to myself in that in that post. And I, and I, and it was just, you know, the photo of, of all that shit. And, 
just darkness, you know, just I've been drinking, I don't know, probably 36 hours at that point. And uh, I posted it and woke up the next morning, you know, hours later. And Don Hasselbeck, Matt Hasselbeck's dad, was calling me. He's like, hey, man, are you good? And I remember just woke up immediately and I read that post and I deleted it. Like, hey, bro, you you, no weakness. Get up. Get back on your feet, right? And I remember Zach Evans like, you fucking pussy, you're a frog man. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right, man, you're right. Like, it was a moment of we- a very bad moment of weakness for me, right? But it was, it was, it was, it, I don't know what, I don't know what it would say. It was, I, I guess, the first time where I allowed myself to let trauma overcome me, right? And I fought against this for years, obviously, right? And, you know, th- I go to work at, I go to work for, uh, for, uh, a company in Silicon Valley, which is a parent company to, I think the richest company in the world, second richest company in the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the covert covert protection team. I'm also on the special projects team and we end up doing a lot of amazing stuff there. But this whole time, my wife is, you know, battling. So I go down for work. I'd fly home on the weekends, you know, and to me, just how, how much money can I make? How much money can I make? How much money can I make? And, you know, there was a point where, just like you, the Navy SEALs Fund, they saved me because TRICARE stopped paying the bills. And the doctor's like, we can't continue therapy on your wife because, you know, it's like $300,000. And I remember just like, and they were nice, though. They are like, you, you just have to pay something. And I'm like, I don't have anything. And I mean, because I, I was paying the debt off of the gym. Right? We, we lost the gym. We, we closed the gym. We ate about just over $250,000 in debt. And so I was trying to pay that off, right? Because, you know, I owed this money. You know, I, I, I could have declared bankruptcy, and I'm glad I didn't. But, I, but I'm like, I, I owe this money. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pay as much of this off as I can, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're asking me for a payment, and I'm like, and I've never, ever accepted anything from anybody. And I remember just being so dark, and I called Mike Martin, who was, I did a platoon with, and UBCL Foundation. I'm like, hey, man, I, I just need a, a loan. I swear to you, man, I'll have this back to you in 30 days. He's like, God, we, we can't give you a loan. We don't, we don't help guys who aren't SEALs or haven't been out for two years. And I'm like, man, I've donated all kinds of money to you guys. I'm just asking for a loan. You know, we, he's like, let me make some calls, whatever. And I'm like, somehow or another, you know, Drago calls me. And he wasn't even calling about that. He just called to check on me. And I remember it just broke down, right? He's a team guy. Like, okay, it's my bro. Drago's my homie. I remember just breaking down. I'm like, and he's like, Taco, just tell us what you need. And I'm literally the next day, it was there. Overnight, it checked me. And I'm just like, I just need, I just need to pay for this treatment. I, 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 I'm like, we can, we can live in the car. I'm cool. I just need to pay for this treatment, right? And, man, he came in my, like a blink of an eye. Like he was there, boom. And, you know, for the next, I don't know, it just years, you know, it was, it was about almost three years of, you know, she's battling her cancer and going through, going through chemotherapy, then radiation and surgery. You know, I'm just drinking, just drinking. And she's a super trooper the whole time, right? She gets to a point where she starts getting healthy. And my wife's way of getting healthy is to go back to work. So my wife is, a, is just, she's a team guy. She only knows how she's such a guy. Like I have to yell at her at like 11 o'clock. And I'm like, baby, stop working. I come to bed. Oh, no, I just got to get my baby. Like, shit ain't that important, right? And so she, she, as soon as she got healthy enough to go back to work, she went to work. She's like, my people need me. So she managed some stores, and my people need me. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so I just, we kind of got in this realm where my wife managed stores, which meant she was gone on the weekends. I came home on Friday, and my wife's gone. 
you know, and she's getting healthier and her way of getting healthier was just to go back to work. Mm-hmm. She's a very committed mother. She's committed to her job. And I think you get to a point in marriage where you're, you're just kind of passing ships because of the kids. Right? And our kids were elite athletes. So we're just traveling all over with the kids and it became normal. And during that normalcy, you know, I, I sought comfort. And I, and I, and and I saw a a pain, a a relief of my pain and, and it came in the form of another person, you know, and, and I I think I was in such a mess that it was just almost like, I need this, like I deserve this. And you start justifying it. Right. And that got so bad to where not only am I a complete drunk by now, and and I keep telling myself, not a drunk, you're not a drunk, you know, you're drunk. If you drink on Monday, I don't drink on Monday. So then it became Wednesday, and then Wednesday became Tuesday. And then I'm drinking on Monday. I'm like, well, you're not a drunk unless you drink during the work, while you're at work. So I'm not a drunk. I'm not an alcoholic. And uh, then you're at work, and I'm shaking. I'm detoxing at work. And I'm like, fuck, I need a drink. I need a drink. I need a drink. And my buddy Casey's like, hey, man, just smoke weed instead. I'm like, okay. So then I smoke weed, and I'm like, oh, it's so much better than getting drunk. So that lasted for a couple months. And then I'm like, I'll drink and smoke weed. Next thing you know, I'm drinking two bottles of tequila, smoking four bowls a day. And I'm, just, I'm even worse now. Right. And now I'm making excuses. Now everybody knows I'm, I'm, I'm having an affair. I'm not hiding it. And cause I just didn't give a fuck. Like literally I'm like, I, I don't even want to live. I don't even want to be alive. Like I, I hate everything. I hate everybody. Like I just, I just want to kill you people. Like I don't even, like, the only reason I don't kill myself is cause you know, my, my kids and then I could notice my kids didn't even want me around anymore. Cause I'm, I'm just a drunk. I'm just, I mean, that's, that's it. I, I'd love to say I'm something better. I, I will tell you in that moment, Everything is going wrong. You know, I, I got fired from Seal Fit because I, you know, myself and another team guy's sister got in this massive screaming match and it's completely my fault, right? And uh, I'm just a drunk. That's, that's this, the best thing I can even say about it. Everything that I say at that point means nothing. And I remember, like, all of a sudden, you know, I, I firmly believe in God now because God's giving me these messages, and I'm like, whatever, dude, whatever, whatever. And, you know, first message is this thing called alpha stem. All right. And so they call this number. Everybody's like, hey, call this number, call this number. And I finally called Marine Corps, the Marine Corps Foundation. Mm-hmm. And they send me this machine. And for the first time ever, I like have this relief. And it's like. What is alpha stem? It's just a, a device. You hook up to your earlobes and it sends brain weight, shocks through your, not shocks, but electricity through your brain. But it was the first time ever I had relief. Like I could, I actually had clarity. Like my headache went away. Like I, I just remember I could be, I was calm. Like I didn't feel like being murdering people. And literally I walked around like waiting for somebody to, to say something, waiting for somebody to cross. Like I was so like, I dare you. I mean, I was so just, and um, that brought me some relief. And I'm like, okay. And then I broke it. And it kind of went back into this darkness area again. And, and then, you know, out of the blue, Grant Dawson's like, I want you to research this therapy. I'm like, all right, whatever. So I researched this therapy. It's called the MAPS program, right? And I'm like, all right, whatever, you know, take, take some psychedelics. Like, you know, those other loser military guys should take that shit, not a team guy. <laughs> I don't need that. <laughs> you think I would ever take that? And so I write this. I didn't even write the paper. My wife wrote it because I'm still drunk. I can't even read and write at this point, right? So she writes paper, and of course, me being the complete asshole that I am, I critique the paper, right? Like, this isn't written very well, but I can't write it, so I turn it in. 
And I get a phone call a couple of days later, like, hey, George wants to talk to you. George is the CEO of the family office. And I'm like, I'm getting fired. And I already been warned. Like, I already been warned, like, we, we would fire you if your wife didn't have cancer. That's how bad I had gotten. I went from the number one employee the year before to where I was. And uh, I'm like, I'm getting fired. So I walk in there, and he's like, um, the boss wants to know what you think about this. And I'm like, uh, I don't think it was written very well. He's like, not that. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, well, what part? He's like, the therapy. I'm like, I go, you know, George, I, I, I think that there's so much trauma from warriors that I think maybe this is the turning point. Maybe this could have a change in some guys. I was like, you know, because these lower-level guys, these 19-year-old Marines, you know, nobody's helping them, whatever. He's like, okay, like, um, would you go down and view this therapy? So I'm like, all right, whatever, you know. So Steve Viola, they were like, hey, take Steve Viola. He's a medic. Steve's my homie. And so instead of me going, I sent Steve down there, right, because I decided to go escape and go hang out. Steve comes back. He's like, dude, shit's crazy. And I'm like, define crazy. Like, crazy. I'm like, define crazy. I have to give a report. He's like, crazy. I'm like, fuck, whatever. So I kind of, de- I kind of delay my findings. Says, it's crazy. You know, like, I don't want to tell him that I didn't go, right? And so I remember, like, meeting some guys who had just gone, like, explained it to me. And it was articulated to me in a better way, right? And I met with Dr. Polanco, and he kind of explained it to me. Well, then, like, literally a week later, my uh, CEO at the time, so there's multiple CEOs at this level, right? So everybody has a company they run. And so George is overall, and Grant was one of the CEOs of called Global Support Development. Grant calls me, and he's like, hey, that group is going to come up and give a presentation. Okay. He's like, you, we want you to sit in on it. Okay. You know, you wrote the paper. I'm like, okay. You went and saw it. I'm like, okay. Yeah. yeah. And um, in walks this really good-looking, six-foot-three, chiseled, brown-haired guy, a guy built about like Eddie, a little shorter guy, and this beautiful woman, and Dr. Planko. I'm like, oh, Dr. Planko, who are these people? And this guy, this big, tall, good-looking guy is all smiley. I'm like, what's this dude's problem? Like, why is he all, like, smiley? And he's like, Taco, what's up? I'm like, how do you know my name? Right? Like, I'm really like, how does this dude know my name? Why is he all smiling? You know? It's Marcus Capone. I don't recognize him. I'm so out of it, I don't recognize who Marcus Capone. I haven't seen him in a long time, but I don't recognize him at all. And so they're, they're talking to me about the Ibogaine treatment. They're talking about the Mexico therapy. And I'm, I'm essentially just ignoring them. Yeah, 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 whatever. And then his wife spoke, Amanda. And when she spoke, uh, I, I, I tell you, man, lightning bolts. Seething the most painful lightning bolts any human being can ever get. That's what went through my body when she talked about how Marcus was before he went to that therapy. And everything she said I heard was me. She talked about things that no wife should have to endure through a husband. And Marcus wasn't a violent guy. He wasn't physically abusive. He was emotionally cold, completely withdrawn, you know, all these things. And you could just see the pain in her eyes, the tears, the pain. And I remember, like, it rocked me. I, I remember going home and, you know, by now I'm not really living at home anymore. I'm kind of a visitor. And... um I'm like, Leilani, what am I like? And she's like, I hate you. Like, you're an embarrassment. And I, and I remember just like, 
it's hard, hard to hear that from this woman, the mother of your children, you know, and, and it's all true. You can't, you can't deny it. You can't, yeah, you're wrong. You can't, you know, do the, the, the typical thing that most men do. I, I listened and I'm like, and she talked about everything. Was that day like kind of the moment um, in recovery, you call it like a moment of clarity? That was a moment of the fog dissipated a little bit. Fast forward about two weeks, and my one of my one of my best friends in the team is Jason Torrey's retiring. So I go down. Two things are happening that weekend. Uh, I know it was sorry. I go down. Jason Torrey retires, and I give his retirement speech. And then he asked me to drive his truck home, or he drives his truck to Silicon Valley, and he's like, "Can you drive my truck to, to Seattle where he's living?" And so I fly my youngest son down to drive with me because I can have somebody to drive with me. And I remember during that, that drive is when the moment of clarity came. Mm-hmm. I just said, hey, Kellen, tell me about me. And so my oldest son, um, he's kind of chiseled from iron, right? Like he's, he's very nice, but if, once you piss him off, he's pissed. So he, he'll, he'll tell you what it is. You push him, he'll, he'll cross. My daughter, she'll just gut you. She'll just gut you. There's no, there's no, there's no gray. My youngest son is is this most loving, just this the sweetest young boy, right now he's a man. And uh, I would say an hour go by, he didn't say a word, and I don't push him, and he just all of us in the blue. He's like, you just embarrass me. He's like, he's like, you just, you embarrass me. And I'm like, how? He's all you care about is football. He's just all you ever talk about is football. He goes, when you're home, you're just drunk. Because you're yelling at the football TV. You're breaking down film. You're yelling at me. You know, you know, he's like, you used to work out with me. You don't even work out anymore. He's like, you just sleep. He's like, you know, he goes, we all know you're cheating on mom. Which is hard, right? Like, because you think you, you know, like, I remember just, you, you, I, I couldn't, I couldn't dig myself out of the car. Like I, I literally was like, I, I want to break the windows to get out. And we have hours to go. And I remember I just sat there looking out the window and just like, not allowing myself to cry, not allowing myself. It's just, just like, you know, like if we could have crashed right there, I would have been happy. And I remember we got all the way back to Seattle and I called Dr. Planko and I'm like, I have a problem. I have a problem. Like I'm all, all I do is all I want to do is kill people. I, all I, I don't care if I'm alive or dead. I can't stop drinking. I, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I'm like, I, I, I'm, I'm, an, I know I'm in an embarrassment. Like I, I, I just like, I'm, I'm just failing. Everything's failing. I have, there's nothing. And he goes, I know. I go, what do you mean? He goes, I know. He goes, all of you are this way. I go, what do you mean, all of us? He's like, all of you. I go, okay, you know, I'm starting to get a little mad, right? I'm like, what do you mean, all of us? He goes, Dan, all I treat are seals. That's it. He goes, all of you. He goes, all of you are alcoholics. All of you have massive trauma that you won't deal with. All of you were, were inundated with death at every level, he goes, and now that you're home and you don't know what to do. 
he's he's like, he goes, Dan, you're not the first. He goes, you're not going to be the last. He goes, but we can help you. He goes, just, you, you have to want to, he goes, do you want us to help you? And I go, I, 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 I can't live this way. I, I can't live this way anymore. Like I, the only thing I care about is my family and my, and I'm not even, I, I can't do it anymore. And, um, he, he, you know, he's like, okay, we're going to, you know, get you in this coaching program. You got to do this coaching beforehand, et cetera. And you need to try to wean yourself off the booze, et cetera. So like for a week, I'm all hardcore about it. Like, oh yeah, you know, I'm writing and shit. And of course, you know, three weeks later, you're like, fuck this, you know, <laughs> boozing it up. And so now I'm on my way to Mexico. My trip is scheduled. And so Drago calls me. He's like, hey, uh, Wake Up Warriors doing a speech. And they're, they're going to present a check to Navy SEAL Fund. And we want you, because I'm the one that formed that relationship, to you to accept the check. And I'm like, okay. So I fly down there, and, you know, it's a convention of like five, 6,000 people. I'm going to speak. And so, of course, I'm in the lobby tipping them up, getting ready to go to therapy the next day. And uh, I get up there, and, and it was the very first time ever I talked. And I got up there, and I explained what they had raised money for and thanked them, et cetera. And, and I just said, and by the way, I'm going to this therapy tomorrow. And this is a group where very in-your-face men's group where they will tell you how, how screwed up you are, why you're failing. And I sat there in front of that group of 5,000 men, and I – and I told him about I had a problem. How come you did that? I don't know. I, I felt like not saying it would be a lie. As I'm taking their money, they've, they've worked hard to raise. And how dare I stand in front of them without and, and pretend that I'm not worse than they are. And, I mean, I just, I just bared my soul. You know, and uh, agonizingly painful, just embarrassed. Like, I, I, you know, like you just never imagine, you can't imagine like what it is to be at a level and then to think you're, 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 you're so, you're, I'm, I'm below the carpet dirt. That's the way I felt. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, and I always struggle with that because even in the teams, you know, where Eddie and I are training says be one, someone special, never in my SEAL career did I ever feel special. Never in my SEAL career did I ever feel comfortable. I always felt like I was barely keeping up. Like I'd look around and I'm like, dude, these guys are fucking like, holy shit. And one thing I did really well better than everybody was shoot. You know, there was a time where I was as fit as everybody, if not fitter. And then when my injuries started piling up, I got slower. The only thing I was ever really good at was shooting. That was the one thing that I, oh, he's a great shooter. Outside of that, I wasn't, I don't think I was good at anything. I, I think I barely was hanging on, right? And so I sat up there in front of those guys, and here's, you know, the guest speaker, Dan Cerullo, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, here's the embarrassment, Dan Cerullo. And so, you know, got done. And uh, the next day, I show up to the airport, San Diego airport, where the van's going to meet us. And I, I get in the van, and I can't even explain to you. It wasn't shock anymore. Now it was just pure and complete embarrassment. Like, how in the fuck did I get here? I worked for Paul Allen. I worked for Sergey Brin. I've ran Super Bowls, Academy. I've, I, 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 I. And I'm in a van going to therapy because I'm a drunk. My family hates me. My kids hate me. My friends hate me. I have no money. Like, how the fuck did I get here? I remember just looking out the window driving because you had to drive there, right? And uh, poor Baba Wheela, you know, who's my mentor, 
he keeps turning off the radio and finally like, I mean, you turn that fucking radio off again. I'll rip your goddamn arm off, you know? Not knowing Bob's killed like a hundred dudes. You know? <laughs> I have no idea who Bob is. He's just old Vietnam guy. I don't know that, right? And he turns the radio on and I'm, and I'm just looking out the window just crying. And there's like five other SEALs, four other SEALs in the car and I can't even look at them because they all know who I am, right? Like it was a time in the teams where I had a reputation, right? And uh, they all knew who I am and I'm like, it, I don't think there was any judgment, but in me there was. Like these guys, sure. like they're, they're ju- they, they, uh, you know, you self, you self think. Do you, do looking back on it now, do you feel like that was like, it, like one of the best things for you, like that, just getting the ego, like absolutely the ego and absolutely because you're so untouchable. Like you, if you look at everything that I that I was able to accomplish from where I started my life to where that, you think you're the greatest thing ever. You, you, you like they made videos about me, right? I believed it. I believed all that bullshit. Oh. I was I was as fake famous as you can get. I'm training Matt Hasselback. I'm training Eddie Williams. I'm, oh, I, 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 they make crossfit videos about me. You believe it. Yeah. I, I call, I call it your God complex. There are guys who get the, get in front of the camera and over time they start belie- actually believing the bullshit. And I hook, line and sinker believed it, man. I absolutely thought I was the greatest crossfit trainer, NFL, you know, off season coach, kids coach football. I, I'm the greatest. I actually believed it. Yeah. But inside, what you said earlier, I mean, like inside really felt almost the opposite where you're going um, I, almost like imposter syndrome. I'm, I imagine a lot of still complete, probably complete feel imposter that. Syndrome. Complete. Yeah, oh. like, and the thing is, is in the teams, you can't do that because everybody there is good. And you get punched in the face. When I'm in Seattle, and so I'm doing it to make myself, because with Seattle, what am I not? I don't have money. The dudes in Bellevue got money. There's more billionaires than millionaires. So my way of keeping up with them is to be egotistical and arrogant. Sure. But basically, I'm just a damn poor gym owner. And they know it. But they don't punch them in the face. So I got away with it, right? So anyway, I'm in the van. We drive down to Mexico. And, <laughs> and that's when the comedy starts, right? So here's, you got to think my mindset. So I literally took my mask and fins, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I'll just go down there and drink some margaritas and go, go body surf. Whatever these little hippies want to do. Right, literally, I then mask and fins in my bag, okay, and so <laughs> show up down there and you know get all settled in the room and uh, you know somehow or another they're like Dan, you have the the master suite. I'm like, okay, I don't know why, you know maybe because maybe because Sir, you know Sergey donated the or Sergey donated the money and I'm I was part of that right I don't know, but, so they kind of treated me just different and I'm like, you know okay I guess and probably because I'm the oldest seal there. Maybe I'm one of the most experienced guys to have gone there other than Marcus, whatever. I don't know. I'm being treated differently. And uh, it's almost like an expectation that I'm treated differently. And then they take my phone. I'm like, how dare you take my phone? I'm Dan Cirillo. I need this phone. They're like, we don't give a fuck who you are. We're taking your phone. I was so thank them for that too, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so then we get into it. We talk. And I remember we're sitting in a circle. And it's almost basically like a um, recovery circle, right? Oh. Everybody's kind of telling their story and I'm listening and I'm the last to go. And Dan, would you like to talk? I'm like, yeah, I don't know what the fuck you guys are struggling from. I don't have any of those issues. I liked the war. Like I, I enjoyed the war. I didn't like, I don't know. I, I don't get why you guys, like, I, I don't even know why I'm here. I was like, but I guess I'll tell you about one thing that bothers me. And I talked about, you know, uh, a, a, a story. And uh, 
I'm like, you know, I don't know how I feel about it. Right. I don't know how I feel. And I, and I, I really struggled that moment of like literally almost walking out the door, mm-hmm. like grabbing my bag, walk out the door. And I remember um, uh, her name's Amanda. She just looked at me. She goes, you don't even know what your pain is, Dan. And I remember sitting there and I go, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And she's like, would you allow us to help you? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And she goes, okay. And so we all go to our room and they get her, because, you know, Ibogaine is a dangerous drug. Mm-hmm. They do our BPs, they do all our vitals, get all hooked up to the EKG and come back. And you, next thing you know, you're doing the ceremony, they're doing the sage and shit. I'm like, you weirdos, what's up with this sage shit? Crazy. I'm like, crazy. And they're like chanting and I'm like, all right, weirdos, I'll go with this hippie stuff. And uh, they give me my first pill. I'm like, okay, this is just a tune-up. They do three. Yeah, three. Yeah. So I give me my first pill. Like, okay, to your room, and we'll be in there in a half hour. So nothing really happens. Just kind of go in there, and I, I feel more relaxed, but nothing. Come in, they're like, how do you feel? I'm like, I don't know. This shit isn't that bad. Right, cool. Let's cool. Right? They're like, okay, here's these next two pills. <laughs> Time for the hero <laughs> <Yeah>. dose. <laughs> yeah. So I take the next two pills, and nothing happens. I go, you can put these blinders on. Blinders on, headphones on, listen to this music, this you know, chanting hippie music. And I'm like, all right, weirdos, can I get some like Tupac? You know, like, can I, can I do this my way? Like some Eminem, you know, like something. And all of a sudden the bed shakes, bam. I'm like, yo, don't shake my bed. I don't like that. Boom. The bed shakes again. I'm like, don't shake the bed. I don't like that. And the bed starts shaking like crazy. I pull it mask off. I'm like, what the, and the doctor's in the corner. He's like, all by himself I'm like you shake that bed he goes I didn't shake the bed I haven't moved I'm like pull the mask back down and lay back down like you fucking shake that fucking bed again and then the bed starts shaking again and this time shaking crazy like 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 a poltergeist shaky and I'm like you're hallucinating oh yeah I'd never hallucinated all I ever smoked was weed never taken anything else and I'm like oh okay Okay, let's go. And then that shit got crazy. And to where I'm like flying out of a plane, no parachute, and I can see the ground coming. I'm like, you're about to die, homie. Spinning out of control. I had to literally talk myself out of a free fall. If the bed's not moving, you're not moving. If the bed's not moving, you're not moving. Counter left, counter left, counter left. Fighting this free fall because it was just crazy. I'm just tumbling and I'm like completely out of control, you know, and and I'm screaming, scream. I've never screamed in my life, screaming at the top of my lungs. Right. And I'm, and I'm, I'm fear. I've never felt fear. You know, I've been scared, but I've never had fear, like fear. Like I'm going to die. I'm dying. I'm going to die. And, and I'm like, just, and these explosions, you know, and these demons, you know, and these, these faces and these claws and just, and I'm, and I'm like, let's fucking go. Let's go. Like, I'm so mad. Like, motherfuckers, you know, I'm, I'm so angry. Like, I'll do this. We'll find out, you know. And it's just getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And, and I'm like on this verge of like, I, I, I think I'm going insane. And it's stops. And I'm kind of like, laying there and I start floating. I can feel myself lift up off the bed. Right. And I'm like, 
Ooh, this shit's getting spooky. <laughs> so I went from craziness to this is I'm now I'm scared. Was I because I don't know what's next, right? And I start drifting along and this ain't so bad. I'm like in this forest, beautiful forest, and these Apple files come down, like Mac computer file, Mac computer files stacked up, thousands of them. And one opens. And it's me as a child. And it starts playing this scenario, and I'm like, I kind of remember that. Mm. And it was a memory of me getting bubblegum in my hair Christmas Eve. And I woke up the next morning, I had bubblegum in my hair, so I cut it out, and I stuck it in a Christmas present. Mm. And then when we were opening Christmas presents, my mom's like, that's bubblegum, my hair came here. You know? And I remember this laughter, and we're, my mom's like, did you open the presents? I said, Daniel, did you open the presents last night? No, mommy, no, mommy, I didn't. Daniel. No, mommy. No, I didn't do that. No, I didn't do that. My brother and sister are laughing. And I'm like, no, mommy, I didn't do that. She's like, Daniel, you opened the presents. And you well, mommy, just a little bit, mommy. And we all, it's all laughing. Everything's laughing and giggling. I start drifting along again. Lots of those memories, right? And, uh, and it goes from the happy memories to bad memories. Repressed ones. Like horrible ones, right? Like I can hear... <laughs> Ooh. Um, I can hear the screams Come on. and uh, I can hear my brother screaming and that sucked um, and so you know dealt with that and uh, you know it's just so many of them right like you know, and, and I don't want to get into that part because, you know, my mom, I, I'm so proud of her. I loved her. She did the best she could, right? And um, a lot a lot of stuff. So I kind of go through that. And, you know, during this process of this, these memories, there's, there's, they, they tell you before you go down there, what are your, what are the answers you seek? And of course, as an arrogant guy, you're like, I know, all, I know everything. I don't need, I don't need answers, but I found answers. And I was telling Eddie, I found out why I hated dogs. Right, like for most of my life, I think that dogs are disgusting animals. They lick me, and I'm like, Phew. right. So I'm laying on my couch. Um, it's I don't know what day it is. It's probably like uh, I'm seven years old. I got my underoos on. Dukes of Hazard is playing, and you know I'm watching Dukes of Hazard Friday night. And I just think my mom walks over. She's like, you know, we just got this house. And, you know, she had met this guy. He's a really good guy. He's an electrician, right? He had a real job and rented this nice house. And she's like, there's a fireplace. We never had a fireplace ever. And she's like, you know, should I start a fire? I'm like, yeah, yes, mommy, let's start a fire, right? So she put some wood in there and, you know, and she's trying to start it. It won't start. And newspaper won't start. And she comes back with a can of gasoline. She pours gasoline on there and starts it. And poof. And there's just fire everywhere. It catches her on fire. Curtains are on fire. The house, the ceiling's on fire. And uh, she just grabs them when we run outside. And the house just starts burning. And we're probably outside, I don't know, three or four minutes. And I can hear these. I can now hear the, the screams of the dog. And they had these two big picture windows. And the dog, you can see the dog running by on fire. And I remember, like, I, I tried to run back to the house to get the dog. And my mom's like, no, you can't go. And I'm like, my, my doggy. And I had to listen to the dog burn to death. Next morning, we came back. And uh, not only was our house being looted by, by some neighbors, 
but I ended up finding my dog burned alive. And I guess that was the, the me, my way of dealing with that. Cause I never believed in suppression, repression. I never believed in any of it. I guess that was my way of suppressing that of just hating dogs. Cause I never got close to them again, you know, and many other stories like that came out. But one of the biggest things that came out of there, cause I could go on for that for hours. One of the biggest things came out from there was I kept feeling somebody lay down next to me and put their hand on my chest. And as these horrible things are coming out of my brain, that would soothe me. And I'd be able to, like, kind of take a break. Because right, they're just so painful. I mean, I, I, you know, I guess that's the right word. And I remember one time I, I, I felt somebody lay down next to me. And I, and eat, but each time I reached over, there's nobody there. God, there's nobody there. And, oh, you're hallucinating. So this one time I reached over, and I'm like, that feels like a boob. <laughs> that's a boob. I take my mask off and it's a, you know, and uh, my hands on her boob. I'm like, I'm sorry. She goes, it happens. I was like, I pull my hand back. <laughs> I'm like, she's like, you, you seem like you, you, you were having a hard time. Like, she's like, it's part of the therapy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you're just sitting there and you're like, okay. And she's like, just go ahead, put your mask back down. I put my mask back down and, and, you know, it, she put her hand on my chest and her hand on my head and you kind of drift back into it, right? And meanwhile, of course, I'm puking and all these other things. And um, as it got really to the crescendo of of this brutality, right? And that's really what it became was brutality of of understanding what it took for me to become a seal, like what what allowed me to go through buds very easily. You couldn't yell at me. You couldn't beat me. You couldn't burn me. You couldn't starve me. You couldn't freeze me. Because that was that was was done before, and it was not going to be going to surprise me, right? And so, as these things are coming to surface, um, I kept wanting because you know they call it you know talk talk to the mother, the medication, you know, and, and I'm like, all right, hippies, whatever, right? And so I'm finally like, just please show me something good. Like you've shown me all this bad stuff, just show me my wife. Just show just show show me her, like just. Show me something good. I've never had anything good, you know, <laughs> my life. Show me something good. And this purple rain would wash. And as much as I asked to show my wife, it wouldn't show me. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm, but I'm, I wanted to be mad, but at the same point, I'm just like, I guess I'm undeserving. And as the hours went by, all of a sudden, this light bulb turned on my head. And I'm like... My wife is my purple rain. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was, that was brutal. That was brutal because in that moment I knew what a shitty husband I was. Right? Like I, I completely knew what a terrible husband I was and what I had allowed our marriage to become, you know? And... I remember just laying there like, fuck, man. You know, and, and, and in that moment, I understood God. Like, there is a God because if there wasn't, she wouldn't have stayed. Because God gave her the gift of dealing with this pain that I afflicted because there will be a better Dan. There will be a better Dan that emerges from this, right? And once I literally kind of thought that, the bad memories went away and these other memories started coming. And they were back to my childhood again, but they were all funny memories. They're all laughter, right? And 
I had this second epiphany. Oh my God, I know what my legacy is. My legacy is my children, not the SEAL teams, not business. The only thing that will ever say I was on this earth ever is my children. That's it. That's the only thing that will ever say whether I did good or bad. And I, I remember it was so, like, clear. Like, I have time. Right? And it was like, I mean, it just got invigorated. So I, I kind of wake up. It's about 6 in the morning. You know, and I take the, I take the medications about 8 o'clock that night, right? So at 6 in the morning, and uh, I was really hungry. So I go out and I'm ready to eat, and they have breakfast, and I'm like, what's this, what's this shit? You know, it's a bunch of hippie breakfast vegan shit, right? I'm like, can I get some meat? And they're like, no, you can't have no meat, bro. You're probably going to throw it all out. It's all fruits and vegetables, you know. So I eat, and, and for like an hour, I kind of felt okay. And then it started again, but it was different this time. It was this time it was like really slow and really long. And uh, Kristen, who was another counselor, she's like, you, you want to talk? I'm like, I, 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 I wouldn't mind. So go back in the bedroom, and she's like, you know, what's on your mind? She's like, I, and I was just like, I, I don't, I don't, I can't comprehend, you know, if this stuff really happened. And she's like, well, tell me about it. I go, I just, you know, like, I just, I just, I saw things. And she goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine yourself back at that house. And I want you to go in there and get those two little boys. <laughs> and, uh. Take him out of the house. And I was like, we're done. <laughs> we ain't going down that road. Like, I, I need to be alone. And so I just went out to the beach, and I remember just walking. And uh, that was so much worse than the night before. Because then it was, why me? Right? That was about two and a half hours, three hours long of, why me? Why did all this stuff happen to these two little boys? Right? And it was it was painful, like just the thought of it. Not so much for me, but I could hear my brother, right? And uh, went through that for like, why me? And then I kind of moved out of that, why me? I remember I went back in the room and I'm laying there and it's not a wood. It's just kind of telling me stories and showing me these demon faces and everything. I go, I don't really give a fuck. I don't give a fuck anymore. Bring it. You don't scare me. I ain't scared of you. You can't, you can't fucking defeat me. I remember to lay there for about two and a half hours, an hour, two hours. Of, let's go. And it went from that point of, of, I don't give a fuck to, it is what it is. It is what it is. This happened. This is why you're a seal. This, this is why you were allowed to rock with the greatest men to ever walk the earth. This is why you were allowed to walk side by side with Spartans in battle. This is what prepared you for that. This is your agogi. You had to endure that to endure this. Okay. Cool. I got that. I get it now. I understand it. I'm clear. Concise. I, thank you. And it went from literally that moment of to complete gratitude. Like total complete. Like I'm glad this happened. Like acceptance of like realization of it, and then acceptance of it. Yeah, like complete like. I'm a fucking frog man. I'm a frog man. 
like I loved working. Like I was a terrible, terrible admin seal. I mean, you couldn't find a worse compound seal in the history of the seal teams. I guarantee you, I will beat everybody, everybody a hundred times. I was the worst walk around the compound seal in the history of the seal teams. I was so miserable. I was so like, this sucks. This is stupid. I don't know what we're doing. As soon as we went in the field, I was the happiest, biggest smile guy in the world. I didn't care how hard it was, how cold it was. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Even the most miserable times when you're freezing, just freezing cold. I'm like, God damn, but I'm a fucking frog, man. You know, when you get your hands behind your buddy's trigger and you're just like, I'm like, oh my God, I love this. You know, if he quits, I'll quit. But if he didn't quit, I'm not going to quit. You know, like, like, man, I loved, I loved being in the field. Like the harder, because I'm kind of a sicko, right? I, uh, I wanted to see other people break. Because, you know, the way I grew up, everybody was better. So if I could be there like buds, I, mean, I hate to say this, but I got off on dudes quitting. Doesn't, doesn't most, most of us do. Yeah, I got yeah. off on it. I'm like, you take their soul. Bye. Chow line just got start, just just got shorter, right? Like, I'm, I'm getting his gear. Like, I would sit there like, all these dudes are all jacked, all tatted. They got someone got tridents, you know. I'm like, then they quit. You're like, bye, you know. And and so when we were on missions, like training missions, you'd see somebody kind of get to their capacity. Like, if you take somebody's ruck, oh, that dude ain't never living that down. All right. And I'm like, I'll take your ruck. Like, I'm that dude. Right. And so that was the gratitude part of like, God gave me this. I have a powerful body, indomitable mind, incredible spirit. You can't break me. It's like it, what, what I hear is almost like the opposite of when you going through it, going through the trauma, accepting it, realizing it. Well, one, it's just like speaking it right and realizing it, accepting it going through that time of like wanting to reject it and not, but like truly accepting it. And then comes, it's almost like confidence after that confidence versus ego. And previously, because you hadn't, you're trying to deny stuff with the ego. What it was for me mostly was I left the seal teams in a, in a pissed off mood. Mm -hmm. Like Eddie, I was able to go. That was a, that was that big. That was my, that was the seal career. That was that big. This is the seal career that I had. Yeah, I don't give a fuck about that no more. This is the SEAL career that I had of these amazing people that I got to work with who are my bros. These missions that I got to do train. Combat's combat. Combat's cool. But some of the training shit we do, you swim across Coronado Bay and swim back and then back out to sea. That's just hard. That's hard, right? You go climb <laughs> Sugarloaf Mountain, right? That, that's hard, right? There's things in the SEAL teams that we do that are like, nobody can comprehend underway shipboarding in heavy seas except a SEAL. Knowing that if you fall, you die. It's, there's no ifs. You fall, you die. And in that moment when you're doing it or coming down a fast rope in the middle of the night on a destroyer deck, like you miss the deck, you're, you're, you ain't swimming, you're just sinking. Those, those, that adrenaline like that. And that's, I was like, man, I forgot about the trial and I went back to all those days, right? You know, I was lucky, man. I got to do a lot of stuff, right? And I went from that gratitude phase of just like, and the final phase was forgiveness of, I forgive you. I get why you charged me. I don't agree with it, but I get it. I get why you said that. I understand it. I understand what, what, why, why mom would happen, right? Which actually came out even more the next day, but I got it. And I just was like, 
I remember sitting there, and you know, and I'm, I'm, it's probably now it's like nine or ten o'clock at night on Saturday night. So you start on Friday. It's a Saturday night now. I remember sitting there, and I'm in just deep emotions of like, you know, I'm really tired. I, I forgive you, mommy. I, I, I'm cool. Just show me one sign you ever loved me. Show me a sign, and, and I'll be, and I'll be good. And I'm literally the moon. Came up, came down from below the the window, and glimmered over the ocean, and I'm like, "Thank you, mommy." And I went to sleep. And I, at that point, I was probably sleeping about an hour a night, maybe two hours. And they say when you get under two hours of sleep, you're about one year of your death. So I'm tracking my sleep on my watch and doing anything I can to sleep, right? But I'm just not sleeping. I slept for like 13 hours. Just and they had to come wake me up. Like, are you okay? I'm like, bro, I, can I just keep sleeping? Like, well, we have this other therapy we're going to do. I'm like, okay, after that, can I come back to sleep? I'm like, I haven't slept. And so I don't remember when I slept. I don't think I ever slept when Leilani was sick. I just don't think I slept, right? I would just hope, I think I would just stay awake because I was scared she was going to die. And uh, I remember I just slept. And it was this this greatest thing. Like, it was like, like, I, did, I always tell people I was able to take my backpack and dump it on the ground. I literally just dumped my backpack. And when I put it back on, there were three bricks. And I'll, and I'll talk about those later, right? But 2,000 bricks from my backpack, and I dumped them. And that's what, you know, if I can get one message across about therapy is people will go into therapy, and they'll deal with the top bricks. And they'll, they'll take some, some drugs, and they'll maybe chip a few bricks away. Sometimes some of the drugs will close the flap on the, on the backpack. But those bricks are in there. Most people don't even know what their trauma is. When you can dump that out, and that's what the psychedelics did for me. They allowed me to dump that damn backpack out in, in the most team guy way imaginable. Like, just jump. So the next day, you wake up, and they're like, okay, we're going to do this other drug called 5-MeO-DMT. And uh, it's called the God Molecule. You're going to have a, an out-of-body experience. You're going to have a, a death experience, et cetera. I'm like, well, fuck, I've already had those, so let's go. All right? And uh, so like, who wants to go first? I'm like, I'll go first. I always go first. Right? It's just my gig. Okay. So I go out there and do the first hit at 500 DMT. And then he's like, okay, you're going to have this godly experience. Well, I did not have a godly experience. Okay. I had a hell experience. So I go in and this was probably the most, um, what's the right word I'm looking for? The most uh, educational thing that I ever learned. And as I went into this therapy, the, the, this first deep session, it went right to hell and it went right to screaming, screaming, just screaming. And, and I could see myself, I'm a five-year-old, my brother's seven, and there's a party. There's all these men. And we go to bed and we get woken up by the yelling and screaming. And it's our mother screaming. And we walk out and the, these men are, are having their way with my mom. And it wasn't in a good way. She's being held down. And we tried to fight them. But what do a five and a seven-year-old do against grown men? And I could hear my mom's screams. And I, I just remember like, the, the hatred of men 
I just, I want to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to kill you slowly. And so we go through that whole thing, and it's terrible. I remember I woke up, and Dr. Planko's like, you know, how did it go? I'm like, I did not go to heaven. <laughs> He's like, I didn't think you did. He's like, you, are you okay? I'm like, I am not okay. And I, I'm up on my knees at this point, right? And I'm just like seething, seething. And he's like, you want to do another one? I go, yeah, but I need all the men in this room to leave right now. So they're the team guys, his mentors behind me. I could feel them. He's like, I go, I'm going to kill them. Get them the fuck out of this room right now before I kill them all. He's, he's like, what about me? I'm like, you're not a threat. You can stay. And I can hear these little feet. His feet run out, right? And they didn't run, but they, they got it. He's like, you ready? I go, yeah, man. So I took the next dose. And that second dose showed me who my mom was before that night. She was this loving, caring, wonderful woman. This beautiful soul, right? This this amazing just loving human being. And what I learned about mom is that every man in her life beat her and raped her and just treated her like shit. And her only outlet was the only people she had more power than. And it explained it to me. And I remember just being so like proud. And then the faces came back, but instead of those faces, it wasn't, them attacking my mom anymore. It was me attacking them. And I, and I understood why men had always been prey to me. Like I used to just go to bars and just fuck dudes up. It's just fun. Iraq, I had no problem just doing what we did. It just didn't bother me. Right. And in that moment, I understood it. I'm killing those men. I'm finding those men who killed my, who hurt my mom. And, and I don't care how many there are. I'm going to get them all. In one way or another, whatever fa- fa- whatever facet my brain will will make it into, and uh, you know they were all brown men, so Iraq was easy, right? And uh, I remember coming out of that session and just having the very clear understanding of why I was able to not have trauma from the war, and in fact, actually kind of thrive in the war. And so he's like, "You want to do another session?" I'm like, "Yeah." So I did the third session, and that whole third session was just beautiful laughter of my mom. And I, I, it took me back to the, to the one thing that I am able to go back to all the time now is my last amazing memory of my mom where, where she was, a, my mom was a, cleaning hotel rooms. So I, I, was, I wasn't a maid, but a housekeeper, right? And she found this, this rodeo was in town. The fair was in town. She found this clown makeup and she painted my face up all like a clown. And then we went to the, to, she painted her face up and we walked around the fair and Dolly Parton was playing and Willie Nelson and Freddie Fender. And my mom loved those guys. Right. And I remember, I think she paid like $5 for the tickets. That's probably her whole paycheck. <laughs> and, uh, it was just a great memory. It was a great memory. And I remember sitting in that memory for a very long time. Like that session must have been 45 minutes long. I don't know. Because I didn't want to let go. And I died. 
right? Like I, I literally was like, I, I don't want to go. I'll stay here. And uh, so I stayed there and I just told my mom, like, I'm so proud of you, right? You did so good. Like, you did the best you could, right? Like, I'm who I am because of you. You know, and I just was complete understanding of everything she had been through. You know, she was 15 years old when she started having us. And she did not have an easy life. And, uh, I mean, at that point, we probably hadn't spoken in 10 years, you know. And I remember just, like, I got it. I fucking got it. And I, I totally, completely, like, oh, my God. Like, she could have given up a 100 times. She could have just given up. And she never gave up. Right? And her way of taking care of us was to find the next man up. That's what she had to do to survive. And and I and I had hated her for so long because of it. And I and I and it, and I remember just like you got to let that go. And so I remember you know she was still alive at this point. I texted her this long message and I just told her everything. And I remember. I remembered it all. And you know and I remember getting done and I called her and and uh, unfortunately, all that stuff that happened to my mom, it caused her a lot of mental problems, right? A lot of physical problems. And I was able to get about five to seven minutes out of my mom uh, where she was very lucid. And, you know, that's kind of the way the next about seven months went, six months, in about seven months, you know, we'd have conversations, but about five to seven minutes where she was there. And then it would drift off into, you know, kind of a, who's out to get her type of thing, right? But I, I didn't care about that. I would just simply say, hey, Mom, I, I got to go, you know. But I would get that five to seven minutes. And the, probably the only regret I have is I kept telling myself to go see her, right? My brother went and saw her, and uh, but I never did. And then she died, right? And, you know, my mom, who my mom was, so you can understand her, by the time my mom died, she had no legs, she only had one arm, and that's how they found her was her trying to crawl down the stairs because she, you know, she was hurting and uh, she was in coma for about a week too. And then she passed and, you know, just, you know, being allowed to be even given that, 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 that deep going deep into my brain to find that is the gift to even get to a point of like, Oh my God, I had so much anger for so long. I get it now. And it's funny as I talked about the three bricks, right? So when I came home, of course I came home to a family who was like, I sent them these, this text like, Hey, here's what happened. You know, very emotionally open, et cetera. And of course they're like, all right, weirdo. You know, like, I mean, I caused a lot of damage. Just face it. Right. And I remember coming home, you know, and I walked into a trigger as soon as the door opened and my trigger was shoes so I grew up incredibly poor. So to the fact that you tried to find two shoes to match in the shoe bin, right? And sometimes you find matches, sometimes you didn't. Sometimes you you wore cleats to school and kids made fun of you. And I became a good fighter because kids made fun of me. And um, so I walked in the door and the sh- there's shoes everywhere. And our house is kind of the house, right? 
I remember just taking the shoes and put them in the cubbies. Whereas before, I would start throwing them, throw them in the trash and lose my mind and fucking screaming and yelling. And uh, but I didn't even think about it. I did. I just started to put the shoes away. I didn't, I didn't do it to go, this is a trigger. I just put the shoes away. And I walked in the kitchen. Everybody's upstairs kind of doing their thing. And they weren't ever excited for me to come home. It wasn't like, hey, people are waiting for like, dad's home. It was kind of like, fuck, dad's home. You know, dad's going to go get a book, get a drink. And he's going to go to the couch and he's going to watch TV. So I remember just walking in and I could hear them. And I'm like, yeah, they'll figure it out. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't be excited for me to come home either. And I remember going in the kitchen and there's dishes and that was another trigger. And so I just started washing the dishes. My wife came down. She goes, what are you doing? I'm, I'm just washing the dishes. She goes, why? I don't know. I was washing them. I go, well, well, what's the big deal? She goes, you haven't washed dishes in 15 years. I'm like, really? She's like, yeah. Really? She's like, yeah. Very cold, right? And I was like, okay. She goes, I, 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 I picked up your, you know, your anejos in there if you want it. I go, I don't, I don't want to drink. She goes, sure. I go, hey, I don't, I don't drink anymore. Hmm. So she, hmm. she walked upstairs and I'm, okay. I sat down and watched TV and I just turned the TV off. I'm like, I don't feel like watching this shit. And I just kind of sat there and one by one, each one of the kids came down except my daughter. All right, so the boys came down like, hey, Dad, what's up? I'm like, oh, I'm good. And they're like, you okay? I'm like, I'm cool. I'm like, okay. And I just kind of literally sat alone in the living room. And uh, I remember just sitting there going, you did this. Repair it. Don't be mad. Don't be angry. Words suck. Prove it. And that's what I decided to do. I just decided I'm going to prove it. And it was funny, as I started walking around the house, these, these like, things popped out of me. So I walk out to, the, to, to my garage. You know, you got to have a man garage, right? My shit is a mess. And I remember looking at my workbench. You can't even see the wood. And I started putting things away. It's nice and pretty again. And I walked upstairs, and my closet's a mess. And I started fixing my closet, and... And I, I sat down on the bed, and I remember that's when I heard something clink, and I reached down, there's there's empty Jack Daniels bottles in the beds. And I stacked them up, whatever, and I remember just sitting there looking at the closet, and I go, that's your life. Your life used to be in chaos, and now your life is starting to show some control. And if you ever allow chaos to come back again, don't wonder what happens. I, I started having conversations with myself, myself, right? It was the first time ever I was, like, completely, utterly crystal clear. And... Everything became very routine for me from that point on. Like, wake up a certain way, do the same thing every single day. And I started having these epiphanies of the SEAL teams. Everything we do in the SEAL teams is the exact same thing. And Jason Torrey says it best. There's no such thing as advanced training. SEALs are the best at basics. We just do them faster than everybody. Right? And everything is always the same. My gear is always the same. Every piece of gear. It's all labeled. It's all the And I literally went back to being a new guy, team guy, Fixing shit, folding it, putting exactly the way it was supposed to be. And just, and I can't tell you how much time went by. It took a long time. And slowly people started warming up. I, I uh, took like two weeks off work. And then I remember going back to work. And my job at that time was doing a lot of counter surveillance. I remember being in the van. We had these specially rigged vans. 
I remember sitting in there and I'm like, I can't be in this van anymore. Whereas before I thrived on being in the van, I was alone, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, <clears throat> I can't be in this van. And I, I called Grant, who was part of the, 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 the re, uh, response team. And I'm like, I need to come over there. I want to help people. So I go over there and I'm like, I'm never going back to security. And so I go through the whole week and I'm now telling people what I'm doing and what I've done. And it's weird. Like other team guys, we had a bunch of team guys that are like, how do I do it? Whereas before they were like, you know, they're like, how do I do it? And each one pulled me aside and I'm like, I'm just open about it. I went on Facebook, I posted about it, you know, we have a private page. And <clears throat> and then I probably had the biggest epiphany that really brought clarity as a civilian to me ever. So now I'm flying back home to Seattle, and I'm in the San Francisco airport. And as I'm sitting there, I'm, I see these two gay men. And they're not kissing or anything. They're just like, they're, they're, they're together. You can obviously tell they're together. And I, I don't know what it was. I, I just kind of started crying. And I, and I was like, that's what I fought for. I don't have to agree with how they live their life, but I fought for the right for them to do anything. They live their life any fucking way they want to. Who am I the fuck to judge them? Love is love, right? And I kind of turned my head over here, and it's this old lady feeding French fries to a guy, to her husband. She's like feeding French fries to him, and I, I need more, just more tears. God, that's what I want. I want to grow old with my queen. Right? And each, I'm just turning just so, to, so people see me cry. And I look over here, and this, this guy's playing cars on the ground with his son. And I'm like, God, I love being a dad. I, I love being a father. I, I, I liked being a team guy. I love being a dad. And, and, and it was weird, man. I, I, I remember going back to work and, I must have made a fucking impression because, you know, Grant's like, hey, dude, like, you're in charge of this shit now. You get these guys the help they need. And so I just started going to Mexico almost every, you know, on the weekends and taking guys down there and talking to guys and traveling and doing interventions with guys. And that literally became my job. And as that fast forwarded, I called Michael Cartwright out of the blue. Like, hey, man, I, I have five beds. You have 2,000. How do I get my friends in your beds? We're, 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 we don't have too many guys. We got guys on waiting lists. He's like, well, we don't do Ibogaine. We're a traditional therapy. We're here on American Addiction Centers. Mm-hmm. We're traditional therapy. And why don't you come out here and talk to me about it? Mm-hmm. Flew out there and kind of explained to him what was going on. And, you know, he told me they didn't have a VA program. And I'm like, well, I know some dudes in Washington. We'd call, make some calls. And, you know, as the time goes by, next thing you know, they get a VA contract. And then they make money from it. You know, like $12 million. You find out the VA pays for complete addiction therapy and mental health therapy for veterans. It, most people don't even know that. And that. Not only will they pay, but in our world, if we get 17 days of treatment for, for a regular insurance, that's a big deal. 120 days. Wow. And so, you know, I bring this pro. well, we bring this program to American Addiction Centers. Next thing you know, American Addiction Centers, is, it, it's saving the business. And so, okay, that's great. I'm getting my friends free therapy. And basically the plan is let's detox them at American Addiction Centers. Those need to go to Mexico, go to Mexico, then bring them back for inpatient therapy get them to the counseling. Now they're ready to be counseled, right? Because I got it. I'm like, I'm ready to talk. Mexico made me ready to talk. I want to talk. I want to get, I want, I want, I want, I want to get this shit out. I get it now. You have to talk to let it out, right? And so one thing leads to another, and Michael offers me a job, and, you know, I get offered another job, and something in my heart just said, 
you know, life isn't about money anymore. Because one job was incredibly lucrative. God. And uh, Michael was offering me, you know, what I made. But, you know, some some equity and some stuff like that. But it, it just felt right. I just felt like this will take care of Dan and his family. But this takes care of the guys. And at this point, you know, Eddie can understand this. I'm waiting for the leadership of NSW to step in and say, we have a fucking problem. <laughs> I'm waiting. And the exact opposite happens. I go to this dinner. So Navy SEAL Foundation calls me and they're like, hey, we want you to help out with this dinner in Seattle. So I go and I, I'm part of the planning team and whatever. And I really didn't do too much for it, right? Some other guys did a lot of work. And this admiral goes up there and we have a VIP dinner first. And he's like, the SEAL teams don't have a PTSD problem. I'm like, oh, really? At this point, all I'm dealing with is SEALs. And all I'm dealing with is SEALs who are 40 years old and above, E7 and above. So we have the VIP dinner. I don't say anything. Right? So I'm in a peaceful mood. I'm a hippie now. <laughs> and uh, now he goes in front of the crowd. And there's about 1,000 people at this dinner. And he's like, yeah, the SEAL teams, we don't have a SEAL. We don't have PTSD problem with SEAL teams. And I'm sitting there like, you buffoon. Your own admiral just threw himself out of a window. You've had a CO commit suicide on deployment. Now we've had two. These men have problems. Yeah, but not, not even that. Like, like, those are only the ones that, you know, the suicides. The, that we know about. But what about the drinking yourself yeah. to death? The absolute. So like, I call those non-intentional suicides, right? And dude. so here's me sitting there going, not only do we have a problem, we have a massive problem. Like I'm on the phone every day with a guy, and and I'm and I'm I'm sitting here going, "Are you so out of touch? You don't even see this." Like, I'm not dealing with E5s. I'm not dealing with 19 year old Marines. I'm dealing with chiefs, master chiefs, commanders, guys who were my platoon commanders, guys who were my task unit commander. That's who I'm dealing with, and not every now and then, on a normal day to day basis. And these men are struggling, and I literally just kind of sat there and I'm like. They're not going to do it. And I, I just told myself, I'm like, you know, enlisted guys have to solve this problem. Take care of our own guys. And I remember making some phone calls, and I get introduced to a guy named Scott Ellison. Scott's an officer from the teams, right? But Scott's a brilliant officer. He's, he's like the, probably the smartest dude you'll ever meet. I remember talking to him, and he's like, well, I'm, I'm starting this thing called the Military Wellness Initiative. And, um, you know, we don't have to go raise money. We have a funder. We basically have two bodies that are going to fund this entire $30-plus million project. He goes, this isn't about therapy, though. This is a place where service members can go to find out where to go. It's a one-stop shop to say, I need horse therapy. Go here. I need addiction therapy. Go here. I need hip therapy. Go here. Right? And he's like, you know, w w would you like to be involved? I'm like, absolutely. So by now, I'm working at American Addiction Centers. I'm the chief of staff, and, you know, we're rolling. Everything's going great. And uh, me and Scotty, we start chopping wood. And we're just chopping wood. And we're figuring this thing out. And that's when I, all these epiphanies of like, what is actually going on? I was lucky enough to go from addiction therapy to stem cell therapy. So I go to stem cell therapy and my body feels fantastic. Oh my God, all the pain is gone. I've had all these surgeries. I don't even take aspirin anymore. And all of a sudden, my brain starts going crazy. I start seeing numbers. Like math becomes this thing that I do again. And I'm like, 
I feel like I'm on Adderall. I feel like I'm on Adderall, yet I'm not taking anything. All I did was these stem cells. I could literally feel a little bit crawling on my brain. And all of a sudden, these memories of the kids playing in the front yard that I lost, they were gone. And I remember sitting there in front of the computer, and I started writing. I'm like, I love to write. I had lost the ability to read and write. And I'm writing. I'm like, Leilani, Leilani, get up here. I'm writing. I'm writing. I'm just like, I can't stop writing. Fucking, oh, my God, I'm writing, you know? And I was taking Adderall. You know, prior to going to the therapies, I had to take it just to answer emails. And not just my brain is firing and firing, all these ideas. And, and like, this, I kept seeing this this map. And, I, and it was weird because I wouldn't call it a hallucinogenic experience. I would just call it a, I guess it's what um, the, the geniuses see when they see a project. You know, they invent a Google. Vision. A vision. And it was a map, and it literally was a road. And it would happen over and over again. And finally, it was like, it's the roadmap to how to treat the guys. Mm-hmm. And I started understanding it and putting it in place. And instead of just talking about it, I just went and did it. Come on. Right? So I went, I'd done the addiction therapy, I'd done the stem cell therapy, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I, I started understanding, oh, that, that needs to go here. This needs to go. And then I went to, you know, the now Andrew was leading American Addiction Centers. I go, I have a plan for veterans. <clears throat> He's like, what is it? Present it to him. He's like, how much it costs? I go, nothing. Here's this charity that does it. Here's this charity that does it. Boom, 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 boom. He goes, okay, make sure, though, they can't, we can't ask them to, they can't ask for a donation, and we can't ask them for referrals. That's, that's enticement. I go, okay. And so I just basically became the guy who, we're going to do the addiction. We're going to do the counseling. You're going to go to Mexico if you need to go to Mexico. Doctors are going to choose that. You're going to go to another center. If you need another center, here's the stem cell program, which unfortunately ended up becoming a fraud because the owner of it, right? So we had to find a whole new stem cell program. Here's Debbie Lee who does the hyperbaric chambers. Here's all these things. And I just basically kind of came to the hub of where to send guys. And it was funny because it was just, it just culminated. And next thing you know, I'm like, I need help. So what do you do when you need help? Call your bros. So I started calling my team guy bros. And they were like, Hey man, I've been, so, I actually didn't really call them. They started like, Hey dude, I've been sober for two years. I've been sober for five years. I've been sober 20 years. But so how I just want to help. I'm like, okay. Like, you know, I don't know what I can pay you. Like when I'm paid, we need help the guys. By the time I was done, 25 guys. Wow. 25 frogmen working in American addiction centers and then COVID strikes. Okay. So healthcare gets obliterated by COVID, not American addiction centers. We thrived. Yeah. Why? Because when nurses walked off the job, we called SEAL nurses. When our tr- treatment advocates walked off the job, we called SEALs. When our chefs walked off the job, we sent frogmen. Next thing you know, we're having frogmen cooking meals, changing beds, bed sheet, you fucking name it. Them dudes stepped up so much. We ended up profiting during COVID. We did not turn patients away. We were the only ones accepting patients. Right? Mm-hmm. We started driving patients. So this is our big program that... that it's called a sober escort program. We started driving patients from their homes to treatment because they couldn't fly. So if they tested positive for COVID, we would go pick them up to bring them to treatment. So we got guys in full mass suits, you know, with a whole plastic in the vehicles. And I'm sitting here going, guys, I'm, I'm, I can't ask you to do this. Like, you don't have to ask us. And it was this epiphany. I've had the, I get these epiphanies and I'm like, they need a mission. That's what the problem is. And I, I end up talking to my buddy, Matt. And uh, he uses a different code name, so i got to be careful with that. And he's like, we don't have PTSD, Dan. We have LTSD. 
And I'm like, what is LTSD? He goes, lack of traumatic stress. He goes, we are so used to action that when we don't have it, that's when we crumble. And I, I literally kind of sat back in my chair like, holy shit, did you just nail this on the head? And Matt owned a little treatment clinic, right? He's doing his thing, and we just started talking. And the more we talked, these, it just light bulbs of like, I know how to do this. And so we, we ended up starting to really think about building a company around it. And then I kind of sat back one day. I'm like, why don't I just go to a big company and present it? And so I've now done that with two companies and presented my idea. And I consult for both of them now. And I'm like, I could do this on my own. I could, you know, treat 10, 12 guys. Why not treat two or 3,000? Because it isn't about naval special warfare. It's about all Leos, all military. It's funded. I don't have to go seek money, right? And all, everything what I've been working on over the last four years now has just gotten, that's what I do. And as a result of it, purely, I was telling Eddie, purely by accident, I have three companies that formed out of it. Because as these guys got therapy and either I couldn't get them jobs I don't know, for some reason, people started calling like, hey, I heard you employ a bunch of SEALs and special operations guys and cops as security guys. I'm like, well, at that point, I had like five. I'm like, yeah. Like, I can get them. I know everybody. Well, could you stand up a security detail for me? And so, okay, here's five guys here, 10 guys there, 15 guys there, four guys here. Next thing you know, we got multiple projects across multiple states. Another big client comes in. They're like, we want you to guard our construction sites. We have massive theft problems. I'm like, okay, but I can't guard them with, like, the guys you employ. I have to bring in my guys. They cost more. I have, to, I have to pay these guys a certain amount. They won't work. They're too valuable. We don't care. We want those guys. So, literally, the company doubled last year. Just overnight. We had, like, 300% growth. Come on. And, and, and I sat there, and I'm like, I have to help them find therapy and I have to help them find a job that's meaningful. And the only thing I can do is really provide the job, stay out of their way. They're very smart. I don't need to, I don't need to coach them. I don't need to, I just need to give them the tools to succeed. And the, the success is they thrive in an environment where they're appreciated and security for a military guy, a cop is just second nature. It's just the way our brains work. So even though it's the most boring security, even though even the rich people we guard, it's the most boring security you'll ever do in their life. These guys love it, but they don't love it because of the job. They love it because they're around each other again. Mm-hmm. And those are those things where I was like, ah, there's little aha moments. And of course, I didn't invent any of it. I just have decided to do my best to accommodate it. Well, and you know it because you are one, right? Yeah. Like, it, it, dude, what a cool story. I mean, you went from like, I'm. I appreciate you being vulnerable too, um, and being really honest, uh, setting ego and everything aside and really sharing. I mean, that there'd be, I, I just, I really hope this, um, uh, podcast is super helpful to a lot of guys. Oh, it will be. I cried like four times. I know. <laughs> Randy, our producer cried. Uh, so, but you went from, I mean, absolutely like, feeling like a complete failure in every area of your life. I mean, I don't, I don't know who can't relate with that. It, at some point in their life, they haven't lived enough. And then and then 
learning how to lead yourself again, right? I mean, because that's really where it started. I mean, when you got home that day, putting the shoes up and looking at your closet, looking at your garage and starting to metaphorically put your life back together and begin to lead yourself Right again, and then seeing that snowball into—I mean, leading—you know, potentially tens of thousands of like really not just you, and then your family, and then you know, outside and and seeing you lead a lot of other guys. Yeah, you know the thing—the thing that I've discovered too is I'm still—I still make mistakes, you know, and and I wish I was that guy who could sit back here and be like, oh, I'm perfect. It's funny because you know, just a couple months ago, I, I made a massive mistake. You know, I, I let my emotion rule of decision in a moment. It was literally a moment of time where I had been dealing with a situation. I was being pushed to my limits and instead of just not just kind of, and I can't work out, right? Like I, I it, it, working out has been a real struggle for me. I had a stroke. So every time I try to get going again, like something happens, I've had, a, they thought I had a heart issue. So I had heart surgery, a couple, you know, two months ago and found it's not my heart. It's my lung. And I've had carpal tunnel, like my hands don't work. I had carpal tunnel surgery. I have this one next month. And so all these things that like, I don't want them to be excuses, but when I work out, I can get rid of stress. All right. I like going to do jujitsu. I like, I like shooting, shooting my bow. I like all these things. And as I started losing those, you know, I, the only thing I've had is being able to go back and do a therapy session. Well, you know, you get so busy. I can't go to Austin to go meet with Dr. Planko to do a therapy session. So, you know, about two months ago, I, I, I had a day that everything went wrong in one day. And it, and unfortunately had to do with money. So, you know, I do own a company, several companies, and I made a decision to self-fund them. Now, I think in business, it's always about OPM, other people's money, other people's money. And the problem is I've been down that road. And, and, and I lost a friendship as a result of it, right? And I don't want to do that again. And so I have self-funded my companies. And it gets to a point where you're looking at, you know, a $700,000 a month payroll and you're, you're like, okay, let me figure this one out. Cause it isn't one payroll because sometimes your clients don't pay for 90 days. So now it's, you know, almost a million and a half in payroll. And you kind of look in the mirror and you're like, that's my entire stocks. That's my life insurance policy. That's remortgaging my home. And that's every bit of cash that I have and all the credit cards so I can make payroll. And then in one week, None of my clients paid on time. And yeah, I had a day that my emotions got away from me. And I did the one thing that I tell people to never do. I wrote an email. And I think I was, my, my what I said had merit, but I just should have never done it. So I don't ever want any people like, oh my God, he's doing, no, I, I, I and, and as a result of it, I called a buddy of mine. I'm like, I need to do another session. This emotion is built up. This, because I never intended to have a, this company. This thing started with one guy guarding one person. And then it became five guys guarding two people. And now it's, you know, almost 400, sometimes above 400. You know, and, and I made a $2,000 investment when I started this thing. And now I'm like, every payroll, I'm like, wheezy. I hope these people pay their bills, <laughs> right? And mama's looking at me. She's like, you know, I'm pretty happy eating rice. And we're just two kids, right? And it's those things where I have to have reminders again that 
you're very vulnerable, and you're creating stress where stress didn't exist when you allow yourself to put yourself in a situation where stress can come. So as a result of those things, I've had to end a few relationships because I can't take on other people's stress. A lot of the phone calls I used to make on a daily basis, guys, I've really kind of limited myself to because now I have a team. And it isn't because I don't want to be on the phone. It's those phone calls are heavy. They're dark. Right? They're, they're, they're accusatory. They're confrontational. And I know what's going on with the guy on the other side of that line. He's, he's, he's proud. He's a warrior, et cetera. And I'm just trying to help him. But sometimes you get attacked, right? And so you're doing that along with running a company. I had two jobs for a long time. I was, you know, chief administrative officer of American Addiction Centers, and I was CEO of Spartan 7 Incorporated, which was the three companies, right? And in May, I stepped away from American Addiction Centers to just focus on Spartan 7, and financially, it was a smart decision. Everything's golden, right? But it's just a different stressor. And the one thing about me and the security company is healthcare is hard because it's challenging, and I thrive in that. The security side is very easy for me. And I find myself getting bored sometimes. So I have the training company to kind of keep me enthused. But what I've noticed about myself, if I don't have an outlet, and this is what I hope everybody understands, is I get, I, it, it comes back. Like this, this, this demon in me of anger and rage is there. I can, I can kind of make him quiet and make him peaceful. Working out has always been that for me. But when you lose the ability to even do a push-up, I mean, you lose the ability to just even go for a walk. Like I, I, right, like, I remember it took me six months to walk 400 meters after my stroke. You just have to sit down and I throw up. And I didn't tell anybody this, right? And, you know, you feel your heart. Everything's kind of just body just. And I was telling Eddie, it's the first time I feel pain. Like, I get cold now. I'm on blood thinners. And it, it, it sounds like excuses, but it's like, you know, this is all new. I never had this shit before. Like, I did Ironmans. I did a Batan Death March. You know, I swam, swam around. I didn't swim two Alcatraz. I swam around that motherfucker. You know, like that was five years ago. And, you know, and so I, I, I've, I've had to be more committed now, especially in the last two months, to what is the why, which is really this whole Christmas break was very defining for me. And a lot of decisions came out of it very clear decisions of what I want my future to be and what I want to do. And, you know, I am going to go back to healthcare right now. I don't know when, but I, I believe that there is a path for Dan to marry a big, massive security company up with a big, massive healthcare company to treat guys and put them to work. Because I think we're in that situation in America, right? I think that in Texas and Arizona, law enforcement needs assistance and putting highly skilled guys deputized in with those guys most of them are former law enforcement officers anyway. You know, a lot of law enforcement officers walked off the job. They want to work. They have a duty to serve. They're just not being treated correctly. So I've been trying to work on that. And those things are interesting to me. Those things are, they keep me invigorated. And, and, I, and I find if really these last couple of months have been very clear on you can't be bored. You're not happy when you're bored. And so Eddie and I were talking about hunting. I love hunting. And what it became to is you like being outdoors. I love fishing, whether or not I catch anything or not. But indoors, I become a, I, I'm like a, I'm like a hamster on a Start wheel. Chewing the carpet. Oh my god! Like Ugh. I'm a dog, right? I chew on the chew on the furniture. I pee in the corner. I start fights because that wasn't meant for that. And I'm starting to understand that more and more. And I've started handing off a lot, a lot, a lot of my security company duties to my COO. And um, 
I've really started making decisions about what's healthy for me, you know, and because I know that I have an ability to destroy relationships because I can be very hard. And so I have to look at that and go, destroying one destroys many. And, and I'm really big on what the consequences of your actions are. And I know what my actions have been and what the consequences have been. So like every day I'm really thinking about that. Like really think about who I want in my circle, right? Who I want, um, what I want to do in business if I'm going to do it, what I want, where I want to go and the things that I want to do. I, I really spend a ton of time on them now. Whereas I think before for years I just kind of gaffed it off and just went with the flow. I don't go with the flow anymore. Right. And it's funny as I was, I, I sent Eli Crane a post this morning, right? And I'm not a political guy, so I won't get into politics. So please, anybody wants to get into politics, I'm not getting into that. But Eli took a lot of flack for standing up. I don't really care what Eli, decision Eli made. I don't even know what it was about. I have no idea. I was proud that somebody in Congress and at a, at a congressional Senate level st- stood by their, their, their way of saying, I'm not voting until I feel it. He, bro, I'm cool. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. I don't care what everybody else is doing. I could care less. I concern what's happening in my bedroom, what's happening in my house, what's happening in my neighborhood and my community. Outside of that, I can't control it. Amen. I, I can affect those things. And first and foremost, I can affect my queen and I can affect my children. And if that's good, everything else is kind of, Right. And it took me sending a stupid email in a moment of emotion to come back and going, you're about to fuck this all up. And, and I ate pie. I ate pie. I made a mistake. Yeah. I was emotional. I was upset. I said my piece. I would, I seek forgiveness. And it wasn't a bad email, actually. It was just me being factual. But, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was dumb. So I, I want to make sure people understand that I, I'm very prone to mistakes. And I, 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 that, I consider myself for the first time in my life a mature man. Like, I don't think I was ever been mature. And uh, I can very much look in the mirror and go, you really fucked that up. Yeah, I, I think that's, that, that's the difference uh, between, like, now than, like, previous to you getting sober. So, like, now you're going to grow, right? That's part of growing is we make mistakes and we learn. And, and, but the other side, you were, how'd you put it in chaos? Um, like the, it was, there was no like growing from those mistakes, even if you wanted to, or even if you felt sorry or whatever, nothing ever changed. And it's like, no, I'm changing. Like I'm growing. I'm, when I make mistakes, I own up to well, it. You're, I see it. you're self-aware. And yeah. that's, that's the way I describe it. Um, I mean, thank you. First off, dude, brother, thank you for sharing all that i mean you're a fantastic storyteller fantastic speaker um you know and i'll second thank you for being vulnerable um and i i can sit i'm sitting here i didn't say anything the whole time as you talked because i'm like i literally relate to every single thing that you said um and i i went and did the mexico trip myself um the best way i explain it is you know in the teams we're very situational aware we're situational aware about everything because we have to be, right? No matter what environment we go into, we're looking around, checking everything out. Um, but the the least thing we are is self-aware. Um, and what that medicine does 
at least for me and hearing your story, it makes you self-aware. It, it, you heal inside. You find out what, what is really causing all the chaos, all the drama, all the where these demons are coming from. You release it, and you become self-aware, and you're like, this is how I'm supposed to feel. And going forward, and I tell everybody this, you know, and I talk to guys that go do the medicine before they do it, and the big thing I tell them is, like, listen, you are going to come out of this a changed person, but just know that this is not the end-all, be-all magical drug. You are going to go back into reality. You're not a perfect person. You're still going to continue to make make mistakes, but what you, what you will have is a self-awareness that you did not have before. You will know, like, okay, just like you talked about the email, I shouldn't, you know, that was a mistake. Okay, that's not a big deal. At least you know it was a mistake where before, you know, and I, I've done similar things where you'd be like, well, I sent that, so what? Yeah. It's like, well, no, now you know, like, okay, I could have done that better. But also having the self-awareness to forgive yourself, to be like, you know what, I'm not perfect, and that's okay. At least I know I can fix it and go on. And I think that is what the real magic of that medicine is, um, is the ability to take that take that medicine and then continue your life and to continue to grow, continue to better yourself every day. And then, like you said, at the we did the same thing at the end of the year. It's like, okay, let's reevaluate what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how can we be better next year. Um, you know, I wouldn't have had that ability before to do that. Um, it's it's really is. I mean, it's a powerful drug. Um, it's definitely can be used for good. Um, and I'm beyond thankful that you you started that center and you got team guys involved. You know, and that's. You know, I said at the beginning of the podcast, we this is our first time meeting face-to-face, um, but I've heard your name over and over, you know, through so many guys, and mainly because of what you started, because you started helping guys out. And that, to me, is bigger than anything we've ever done in the SEAL teams, you know. that, And like you said, it's it's shooters taking care of shooters, door kickers taking care of door kickers, because we know, sadly, the command – NSW and then the military as a whole really isn't going to step up the way they should to help these individuals when they get out. So it is on us, you know, and I'm, I just want to say like, thank you for what you've been doing since you've been out. Um, it's, it's a missing link. You know, you're not the only one there's like, you know, Amber and Marcus Capone, but it takes, it takes a village to help, to help everybody out. Um, and hopefully going forward, you know, hopefully people that listen to this podcast and you don't have to be in the military or be a veteran to relate either. All of us come from trauma in some form or fashion. Um, and you can be healed from it. It's just, you have to put in the work. Um, you know, whether you want to go down the medicine route or not, either way, you can still heal by putting in the work, but you have to heal yourself first. Um, and that's, you can't help other people until you help yourself. And that's what I found out from it as well. Um, so, yeah. Dude, and that, that, that's such a nail in the head, right? And that was the <clears> – I've, I've been lucky enough to obviously, you know, Mex- there's so many things, right? So, one, the trial. Two, the loss of a business. Three, the, my wife getting sick. I've had these things where I, I truly believe those are were messages from our Heavenly Father saying – I'm, I'm trying to tell you something and you're not listening. Yep. 
And so, you know, for me, Leilani and I, we, we talk about this all the time. I, I think the cancer, and I gotta make sure I say this without, because it sounds so selfish, but my wife is wholesome and pure. Why didn't I get it? Right. And, that, and that's an arrogant way to think of it. I think that was God's way of saying, you ain't listening, bro. You, you're not, you, I'm trying to tell you, I'm, 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 I'm trying. So you're not going to listen? How you like those apples? Right. And it was massive wake up call. Now it's fast forwarding, you know, having my own health issues, you know, being, uh, being a vegetable for 12 hours is unpleasant, you know, like laying there and not being able to say your name and having your wife in the room with you when you're trying to say one and you're looking at the clock and you're going, and that I remember that night. Right. And it was okay. I, I came out of that. I'm like, okay, I get it. I call I, you're pushing too hard. Cool. And you know, then going through the, the heart issue. Okay. And that was kind of the final one, but you know, I had my 50th birthday this year. Right. And I do not have birthdays. I don't have birthday parties. And so my wife's like, what do you want for your birthday? I'm like, I want to bring all my bros together. You know, I just want to have a party and I want them to come and, you know, like I, I, I want to celebrate them. Right. And so we came to Austin, uh, Dave Fernandez, who I was in Mosul with, he was an STV seal and went to damn neck. Um, he has a restaurant called frog and bull. So we had my party there and it was awesome because so many of my friends from all over. And I remember when it was all over, my wife's like, how do you feel? I go, here's the reality. I may never see these guys ever again. That's the reality to get them all together in one room. Yeah. Right. And I'm, and I'm like, I think I have 20 years left. I'm, I'm realistic about it. No male in my family's lived past 70. I'm not scared. I know that I do not want to live the next 20 years the way I lived the last 20. Hmm. That's really that simple. Like, yes, I got to do these cool things, but I now, I have this, this, I have these, this friend of mine and he's, he probably hate that I'll say his name, but he has had such an influence on me because the one guy who should have the biggest ego ever doesn't want anything to do with it. And his name's Brian Contosh, right? And so Brian was awarded the medal of honor last year and he hasn't put it on his neck yet. And he was a Marine officer and, you know, a big massive battle he fought in and, and, um, that guy does so much for Marines completely avoids the press. Doesn't do the speaking tour. I'm, I'm told him like, he's like, doesn't want anything to do with it. As a matter of fact, right now he and three other seals are rowing across the Atlantic ocean to raise awareness for this thing that we're talking about. And he could be the guy, the face of it, medal of honor. He didn't want anything to do with it. And he told me something one day and it just to my core, he said, give. Boom. And I remember, I don't know why that word has stuck with me more than anything that has stuck with me ever. And I have done my best to look in the mirror and go, I, I gave more than I took today. You know, I, I have no problem writing the checks when I can write them to help people. I have no problem you know, driving a guy from Nashville to Oxford, Mississippi, another fellow bro, to go to treatment only for him to jump the wall four days later and me go pick his ass back up. I have no problem with that. It bothers me, but I will be at your house tonight if you need me, you know? And 
that's the one thing that makes me feel good. And I actually, I actually feel good when I do something for somebody, even if it's just stupid, you know, and, and my wife laughs at me cause I get, I don't know, I, I guess I'm kind of, I would get really emotional these days. Maybe it's cause I'm a testosterone, <laughs> estrogen, but I don't know. Right. But like I see a homeless person, I don't look at them and go, you bum. I look at them and I'm like, how do I help this guy today? You have compassion. Yeah, like I, I, go buy him a meal, buy him a give him my. I don't care, my saw. I don't care, right? And I think that a lot of people, you know, as as I as I wind this thing down, think that that's what an addict is—a bum on the street. And what they don't understand is an addict is a highly successful professional businessman who was able to mask it so well until the very end that people are like, I didn't even know you had a problem. And that's the message of. Yeah, we're seals. In your eyes, these books, the movies, we're we're dudes. We're dudes who have had to watch our best friends either die in combat or succumb to the disease of addiction and mental health disorders in the civilian world. One of my best friends, by the time they found him, he was bleeding out of his eyeballs because he had so much alcohol in him Mm -hmm. in a little cabin in Montana. And, and, and I'm, I'm, and I go visit his grave once a year and I, and I sit there, I'm like, I could, I didn't know how to help him then, but I, I wish I, I wish I could just made it a little bit longer than how to help you now. And, you know, one of my mentors, you know, just took his life not too long ago. And I sit there and I'm like, God damn it. I'm not doing enough. Like I get to do more. I need like, there's a guy on the teams who, you know, he's, he's, I'm so proud of him. His name is Johnny Satello. He's out there talking. There's so few guys that talk. How many of you guys have we sent to Mexico now? 600? Oh, 700? Yeah, more. You can count the number of podcasts that guys go on and talk about this. Like, why isn't everybody talking about it? We have a problem. We 22 suicides a day is completely false. That's, a, that's false. I guarantee it's more like 40. And in the next five years, it's going to double because why? For the last 20 years, all these guys have known as war. I don't say guys, all these service members have known as war. Now they are no longer war. The way it ended was not good. And they're sitting at home. A lot of them make really good money in retirement. They don't have to work. And booze can get delivered to your door. In the next five years, we are going to see the suicide rates not decrease exponentially no, we're, we're increase. We're just seeing the tip of You're the seeing iceberg. the tip because yeah. now they can't get jobs. Crime is through the roof. Politics is, a, is an embarrassment. And that scares me because, like, holy crap, man. These these people earn the right the, the, to, to, to live a quiet and peaceful life. They earned it. And how, how can we give it to them? And so many of them don't even know where to start. And that's what I want to do. I would, I'd almost even say, like, earn the, to not just to have a quiet, but to thrive, right? Maybe, like, even the ones that don't aren't suicide or alcohol or abuse, like, there's still trauma in, like, trouble transitioning. Yeah. Like, good Lord, is there a single guy that comes out of the middle? Like, I've worked with a bunch of them of trying to help them, like, entrepreneurially or, or or help them narrow down, like, where to go in a path. Like, I mean, it's a str- it's such a struggle for them. And you're going, hey, I clear doors. I clear rooms. 
it's like I I have to work only security, and it's like no, your leadership skills. There's there's all sorts of like things that translate into all sorts of paths. But helping them navigate that, they're used to taking or just like getting orders and, and, and executing them and trying to lead themselves, like you, you were discussing earlier. Um, man, I'm 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 more than behind your mission. Any way that we can help? Um, yeah. Is there any way and people listening right now that can support your mission or what, where they can donate to or? Yeah, I always say you know donate one donate to your your foundation, donate to Navy Seal Fund, um, donate to Marcus and Amber. You know, I don't have a foundation. I'm not going to have one. That's not my gig. You know, the, the, the horse foundation. There's so many great foundations out there doing so many great things. Just pick one because that money is going to do something. It's going to help people. Yep. My job is just to say, here's what I believe in. I do believe in heroes for horses. I do believe in what, you know, vets seeking, seeking solutions. I do believe in mission within. I do believe in the pipe hitter foundation. I do believe in Navy SEALs fund. I do believe in, in, in uh, the big fish foundation. Those are the ones that I support and I raise money for, and I I do my best to to give to those guys, those people who own those organizations, because I know what they're doing. Right, every one of them, they're not commingling, they're not overlapping. I get it. The, the issue I have is is when I find out they're not doing the right thing. Oh yeah, right. And hmm. and you know that that's neither here nor there. But I, I tell people that. If you're going to give to a charity, the very first thing you should do is go online and see what the officers of the charity make. Yep. And if you can physically say that they are deserving of that salary, then donate. But if you can look at that salary like I do sometimes and go, what the fuck? Don't donate to that. Find one where hopefully the number is zero. Some people got to get paid for their time. I get it. <sighs> but sometimes I see them and I'm like, okay, that's not what I donated this money for. You know, and, and so um, – yeah, man. Uh, you know, my biggest thing is there are so many great organizations out there, but if you're, if you're at home and you know, you, you, you think that, that your help isn't out there, it's simply a self invented thought. There's so many people willing to help mm-hmm. so many people, you know, and, and, um, I just think it, all it takes is, you know, you always say the same thing. You just ask for help, but you reach out to a bro. Mm-hmm. You know, like we always want to do bro check-ins, but you take the time to just make a call to a bro. Like yep. if you feel like you're in that place, just, Hey man, here's what I'm going through. That's where 90%. I, I don't know who's hurting. All of a sudden somebody would call like, Hey man, I just got off the phone with, and they're not doing very well. Can you talk? Absolutely. Give me their number right now. Cool. Right. I had one of my old bosses contact me two nights ago. He's like, Hey, my cousin, give me his number right now. Yeah. Like, but if I don't know, I can't help you. Yeah. yeah. So, so I got some stuff for you guys. Oh, shit. I'd say I'd say this. Uh, if we'll we'll put a link in the description for it, uh, just a contact form if someone needs help. In, yeah. in hearing this, that they can contact, and I, I, me, myself, or Eddie will make sure they get help. All right. So you thank got? you so much for having me on the show. I know I could talk. Me and Eddie could probably talk for ten hours, but um, oh. Spartan Seven, we don't do we don't sell merchandise. Uh-huh. All right, so the only way to get Spartan 7 gear is to come to our courses or for us to give it to you as gifts. And Ooh. big thing for us is our courses is how Dan raises money, All right? So, you know, yes, it's a business. We're not a nonprofit. We are in the business of making money. Sure. We really specialize in working with high net worth individuals to come to our events. But what we do in those events are, and this is for the guys who are thinking about going to recovery and you go, what do I do? Dan Cirillo brings guys in recovery to his events to work around high net worth people 
so they can get to know you. And in that event, you're basically be having a job interview, a once in a lifetime interview. You will never have access to the clientele of that level. That's what I like to do. Cool. And That's I've gotten awesome. a lot of people jobs, um, very lucrative jobs, because this is the one thing that I have done that I, I, I really pissed somebody off one time the last time I spoke, because I don't, I don't have a problem saying this. You don't lead sales. I'm sorry, you don't lead sales. You, you can't lead the 1%. You just got to kind of stay out of their way and pull on the leash. And so I said that to a group, a room full of SEALs, and I told them, yes, you can start in security just like I did, but don't think that's where you belong, all right? You have, just like you said, leadership. You have all these skills. You just got to do the check in the box. And the check in the box in the civilian world is, yes, go to school. It sucks, but it's not that hard. That is your open door. And an MBA is a trident. If you're in the military right now and listening to this, it's free. Why would you not do it? If you are a, a special operations guy, all you have to do is do that, and it's set, right? And so I always like to tell those guys, and I, when I speak to guys, I speak to the guys. It's there, but don't think it's there the day one. It's okay to come in at the bottom you will eat everybody alive when you're there. You, you, they can't keep up with the work ethic that you learned. But don't go in there and start ringing the bell and shaking the tree going, I want, I want, I want. It will come. Be patient, yeah. right? So that's what we, our events do. We talk a lot about that. We bring in a lot of brand new guys, brand new instructors to meet this clientele, be around them, and, 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 and uh, kind of hear what my core group of instructors have to say. They all say the same thing, right? Because all of us are kind of on this other path of, We've kind of gone down the rainbow. We're on the, I don't know what you, I don't know what, what you call it. We're on the side where we all like our wives. We're not getting divorced and we're not out snorting lines of a stripper's stomach, you know? So <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's an award, right? So anyway, I didn't know there was going to be three of you guys. So here's some, uh, a couple hats for you. Oh, thank you. Um, obviously the t-shirts and I bring brown because I always get the white ones all dirty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have some stickers. But the one thing is uh, the coins, right? So coins are a big deal. Thought. So obviously Spartan 7, but the one thing on here is the motto that we kind of live by, sh shield to shield, shoulder to shoulder. And um, I wanted you guys to have these things from me. I appreciate that, brother. Dope. Sweet. Yeah, these are sick. Soft. All right, you're to wrap it up. We've been going for about three hours. This is the longest one I think we've done. Dude. Is it? Oh, my boss. <laughs> no, it was, it was good, though, man. This, this is probably the longest, but probably the best. the best. Yeah, you did. I mean, it's fantastic, brother. I really appreciate you guys having me on. And I, I, I like talking about this stuff. And, you know, I, uh, it's, it's weird is that every time I think I'm past it, those, you know, I expect my trauma to be the, the, the fights and the, the, the gun, whatever. My trauma is my queen, and that that I I still probably regret that I need to do more. And you know I, I I'm in love, and I I feel like I've been a husband for the last four years, and I feel like I've been a father for four years, and you know that's that emotionally only gets me because I wish I would have started earlier, and I'm glad I didn't die on them before I could finish. And my my finishing is very simple: is I want to make sure they're all taken care of before. I move on to a different place. So thank you guys for having me. Awesome. Bro. Thank you, Dan. Uh, what's the word? Out. Out. <laughs> <laughs> Dude.
Good.